and welcome to episode 42 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, known renegade, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today, we have the editor-in-chief of the world. Uh, this is John McCarroll. I, I got demoted, though. I'm only editor-in-chief of uh, the Western Sahara now. So, yeah. Cricket. Awkward silence. Stephen Myrick, this is my favorite podcast on RPG Fan. Stephen, did you play as a renegade or a paragon? A paragon, but I took some of the renegade things because shooting people in the face when they're—I was going to say a bad word—shooting people when they deserve it is awesome. Is it wrong that when you said I was a paragon, but then I thought you were going to say took an arrow to the knee? <laughs> <laughs> no, memes are bad. Continue. No, I totally felt it coming. I totally felt it coming. All right, and then we have the resonant Mass Effect lover out in California. Hey, my name is Ashton. I'm um, maybe on the boards. I'm just some random reviewer extra on RPG fan. Yeah. And then, what? No, sorry, it was a stupid joke. Continue. Good. And then our resident Canadian who is here to tell us what Mass Effect is all about. I'm Liz. I'm QSA on the boards, and I'm the chief news editor. And I played All Renegade. That's right. Shoot. That's right. Shoot people in the face and punching out reporters. That's what we do. That's how we roll. Okay. Oh, so wait. I didn't say if I played Renegade or Paragon. I'm like half. I, I, I like so. how I like how Rob specifically said before the podcast. Let's all not get excited and talk over each other because that doesn't make a good podcast. And it's been what like a minute and a half. I'll just be quiet and sit in the corner, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sam being good. <laughs> All right, so we got three sections of the podcast for you today. So we're going to start off with a very spoiler-free discussion of Mass Effect 3. It's the game that everybody's talking about right now. Uh, then we're going to be sure to mark down and say over and over again that we are going to go into spoilers because obviously there's a lot of stuff to talk about in terms of the Mass Effect story. A lot of people, a lot of controversy going on with that, so we're going to go in-depth on that a little bit. And then in the third and final seg segment, we have an awesome interview that John and I did with some Atlas PR guys. We had uh, Scott and Aram. Scott's the QA manager on, uh, or the QA lead on uh, the Game of Thrones RPG. <clears throat> and Aram is the uh, head of PR for Atlas USA and has been for almost five years now. Thank that game looks pretty cool. Well, I just love Game of Thrones, so that works out perfectly. Yeah, that, that was more or less what I had in mind. I was like, ooh, RPG, Game of Thrones. Yes. Well, John, thank you for saving me on that one. So uh, let's start off and talk about Mass Effect 3. And again, we're going no spoilers on this. We're going to try to keep it very simple. Just talk we, about Yeah, we, we, we will let you know when we get to spoiler territory. Yeah, we will say and it all over and over again. And we're going to try and include in the liner notes for this that uh, what what time to skip yeah. to if you're not interested in hearing spoilers. Yep. So we will not go into depth about how Adam Shepard, or, or uh, how, you know, I had a really funny joke there and I screwed it up so bad. Let's just, let's just move. Yep. On. Moving on. Yep. Moving on. Yeah. All right. So John, you did the first review for the website. And if I yes. remember correctly, you gave the game a 90. That is correct. All right. So tell us a little yeah. bit about your experience with Mass Effect 3. All right. So um, as first reviewer, when you get early copies of games, you tend to have to barrel through things. Um, luckily, I had a little bit more time than I expected with Mass Effect 3. Um, it wasn't a, okay, I've got three days to play a 20-hour game. Um, so, actually, I, I shotgunned it, but I shotgunned it because I enjoyed it. And, you know what? 
I think, I, one, I think the ending gets a bad rap, but that's not what we're going to talk about right now. But I think that we've got a game that has mostly smooth controls, that has absolutely fantastic set pieces in the story. And it has some parts that are awkward, but you know what? Every game has some parts that are awkward. All in all, this is an incredibly top-quality game. It's just got some flaws. It's it's one of the buggiest Bioware games that I've played. And Bioware actually, you know, despite having very complex open-world RPGs, they tend to have pretty clean games. Yeah, there are minor bugs, but there are no big ones. I ran into some fairly big ones. As did I. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience where um, the game started off pretty bug-free. I wasn't having any issues, and then I started to have graphical glitches. Like, Garrus just disappeared one time in the middle of a conversation. That kind of frustrated me a little bit. I had some crashes on the PC version. I I was a little surprised. I think we, we've come to expect a little bit better um, from Bioware when it comes to that. But I think John really hit it in that, you know, the combat that they've gone from with Mass Effect 1, and my opinions on Mass Effect one are well known uh, mass effect 2 really enjoyed the combat but you know still had some issues here and there i mean mass effect 3 the advancements that they've made into making this a really solid third person shooter with lots of really cool abilities and cool set piece moments and cool characters to fight i, I think it's very commendable i i had a, a reader email me actually about because I, I had one of my pros was that the game had deep combat and it was something like, lol, something that just clones Gears of War is deep. And you know what? While it is a top-quality third-person shooter, you know what? There are pretty significant tactical options in the game. There's a lot of ways that you can choose to play. It's not, okay, do I want this gun or this gun? And you know what? Even though it's not a turn-based game, which is what a lot of people expect with RPGs and what a lot of people consider to be depth is, okay, I can slow things down and use strategy, there's still an immense amount of strategy to be used in Mass Effect 3, and it's done that spectacularly. I absolutely agree okay. with that. Like, at like my first, I would say, like 10 hours into the game, I go, man, I go, you know, as a Vanguard, my strategy used to, used to just be, holy crap, charge everything! And... <laughs> You know, I felt like, oh, man, I got cryo ammo. I can slow these enemies down. And then I got lift. And I'm like, OK, I can lift these two guys and then I can charge that guy. And then, you know, I'll have Liara stasis this guy and then charge into him to use the biotic explosion. And and in multiplayer, it just gets even better because you can actually coordinate that with your friends. And that's part of the reason why I think the multiplayer combat is so fantastic, because they build the powers to complement each other. And that works in both modes. You know, I, I agree. I think the multiplayer is is much better than I think anyone was expecting it to be. You know, the, in, in some ways, yes, it's a clone of Gears of War horde mode or, or however many games have done it up to this point. But because you have so many options, it, it's so much more than that. It's not, OK, everybody shoot that guy. OK, now everybody shoot that guy. It's, yeah, it's, it's much like the um, in Final Fantasy 1, where you have a lot of different jobs, but you go to Final Fantasy 3, where you can choose different jobs for each character in mid-game. It's kind of like that. Yeah, and and the fact of the matter is, you know, there there are some gripes to be had in regards to the microtransaction. Um, it's set up almost exactly like the EA Sports Ultimate Whatever League for their sports games, where, yeah, you can do everything if you put in effort, but you know what? If you give us just $5, you've got a massive head start on everyone else. Like, it's, I, I understand that they have to make money, but I think that, that much like the Ultimate League games, it, it's, it's too far unbalanced in regards to DLC making you powerful, you know? I threw $5 into the game. It's like, oh, I got this awesome Geth shotgun that probably would have taken me, I don't know, 
40 or 50 matches to get. So that's what, you know, 20 hours of multiplayer gameplay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, that definitely happens. And I, I think what I you're... I consider it. Because even, like, the other packs, like, there's that Spectre one, and there's the ones that are 80 points or whatever. And I did consider it, but then that, like, kind of leads down to a path, and I start doing it more. And all of a sudden, I've spent 20 bucks on just the weapons. I'm like, okay, I don't want to go down that path. <laughs> yeah, I had some leftover um, Microsoft points that I just um, threw into the multiplayer, and I got some pretty cool stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I don't see how this can end anything but badly. Yeah. I'm very opposed. We've talked about microtransactions before, and I'm very opposed to spending money unlocking stuff and that sort of thing. And I, I, go ahead. Oh no, no, no. I, I I think that that I want to let you finish, but I want to rebut because you know what? I I think that that you're right in regards to unlocking things, but I think that you've expressed you know a, a lot about microtransactions, and I think that there are some microtransactions that do work incredibly well. This is just not one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's fair. I, I think that, you know, I, I haven't even had a chance to play the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer yet. Steven keeps, you know, yelling at me whenever I'm on Origin to jump on. But I, I really don't have any desire to do it. And then when I hear about these unlocks and things, and I'm, I, it immediately drives me away. I have no desire to do it. And then I compare that to, like, when I was a big Call of Duty 4 player, you know, I loved getting the unlocks in that game. But since... Every weapon was viable, and the only differences were just the the different ways that you could tailor your experience. It didn't make you suddenly better that you were using an AK-47 instead of, like, the M4 carbine that you started out the game. It was just a different type of weapon with a different, like, list of loadouts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's not completely fair either, because Mass Effect 3's weapons also have a lot of different distinction between them. Uh, And it's the playstyle isn't completely dependent on your weapon either. You know what? You're right there, but there are pretty significant balance issues between the weapons and multiplayer. Like, there's if some you, that are definitely the best. Yeah, if yeah you, definitely. If you haven't, uh, like, if you unlock the the uh, either the Geth shotgun or the the tooth launcher or whatever it's called, the Krogan spike shotgun, launcher. Yeah, the spike launcher. Yeah, um, those are so more massively powerful than the other shotguns that there's no reason to go back to another one. Yeah, I agree, especially since the guest shotgun is like long range. I could just kill things from far away with it. Yeah. For me, it kind of reminded me of, and this may seem like a strange comparison, but like buying packs of Magic the Gathering cards when I was a kid, you know, I, you know, I didn't have as much money to buy cards, so I'd be sitting there with whatever the heck I could find, and it was garbage. And, you know, I had a friend who could go out and drop 50 bucks a week on it, and, you know, I was like 12, so 50 bucks is like a million dollars. <laughs> and so he had all these crazy cards, and I'm sitting there like, yeah, I just have to trade to get cards. And with Mass Effect, like, I mean, I, none of my friends are, are buying credits, so we haven't had that problem, but I could see it very easily. Like, there is a pretty big disparity yeah. between, like, the, especially shotguns, because, like... In the single player, I use the Disciple, which I think is the Geth shotgun, but I, no, it's not. But, no, it's not. No, it's um, not. But, you know, in multiplayer, when you have three other people that are, you know, responding with the speed of a human being, you know, getting the the, the, like, the spike launcher, you're like, why would I need more shots? My friends will take it down, and I can just drop them with a million damage. And I, it's true. If you get that early on, you're yeah. pretty much, you know, golden. Now, one thing to, to, to yeah. go back on my original point and defend the game is it's not competitive co-op mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and right. so it's not like oh i got this spike launcher i'm gonna kill everyone in the game it's well i've got this spike launcher i'm more powerful versus these enemies and everyone gets better right it's yeah. pve yeah. which i think 
makes the microtransactions easier to swallow. Because if it if this was competitive, then I would be absolutely losing my S over things like that. But like since it is just you and your buddies versus the enemies, and if you know somebody if if Steven's friend wants to spend fifty dollars to get all those, you know, special shotguns and special goodies like Magic the Gathering, it doesn't really bother me that much because we're all kind of working together right there. And I mean it I still don't like it, but it doesn't bother me nearly as much as if this was like, you know, a player versus player situation. Yeah, I agree. Um, a lot of the things, uh, for example, like the different character classes, all but the human, male and female are locked, and all the character classes that are of different races are rare, so it's almost like they're forcing you to buy the multi-transactions in order to get the different races. There are some that are uncommons. Yeah, the Drell uh, Vanguard is uncommon, because I got that. Oh, really? I yeah, got that in yeah. the demo. I actually got that in the demo, and I got it in the uh, in the full I, game, like before I, anything else. I haven't I, unlocked any classes in the game yet, other really? than what's default. I I do believe that of the six classes, there are six uncommons and six rares. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I believe that's how it's set up. As you, all have. I know is that I didn't get any um, extra classes until I sprung for the Spectre Pack. Hmm. So now, uh. To go along, I think it's interesting that we immediately gravitated toward multiplayer when we're talking about Mass Effect 3. I find that interesting. So to kind of steer it back to the single-player game, because I, I think we're all in agreement that the initial worry, the initial knee-jerk reaction that we even had on this show was to go, oh my god, don't put multiplayer in my Mass Effect. And Absolutely. It and it, I admit I was like that, yeah. Well, not, re not really. I, I always assumed that it would be something like um, in, say, Splinter of Cell Conviction, where you had a co-op thing. Right, and I, I think what they did was very, very good, and that's fine. Now, to, to swing it toward the uh, single player, to add kind of a segue, I know that one of my beefs with the game and I'm not going to go into spoiler territories, I don't like the fact that the ending of the game is affected in minute ways based off of the um, the multiplayer component, which first off gives Steven an opportunity right. to explain the military readiness to me. Actually, I do need to cut you off there. You can get, you don't have to do the multiplayer to get that stuff. Like, But then I, you'd have to do like every minute side quest ever to make up for it. Yeah, but you know what? I did every side quest ever. Yeah, I, mean, I think that, I had like one yeah, left yeah, over. I mean, yeah, and that's exactly yeah. what Bioware said. People didn't want to have to play the multiplayer. And in you know, in Mass Effect Two, if you wanted to get the best ending, you had to do every single side quest. And right. so I don't I don't think that's changed. No, that's fine. That's fine. But now my my point is what you're, they're giving you two options, which is completely fine. But I I still don't like that multiplayer component getting involved. But at the same time, I did have the single player portion open to me, so it's not a huge problem. But it is something that like I kind of rolled my eyes at, see, not, not the see, least of which I, because I didn't think that Bioware was doing a good job of explaining that to me. See, I, I disagree that that it's a bad thing that they do that. You know what? It makes it more inclusive for for more players. Absolutely. Like, I think that, you know, it doesn't affect you to go and if if in in whatever version where the multiplayer doesn't exist, you're going to have to get all the doodads anyway. Like, true. And if you don't want to get the doodads, you can go and shoot things with your friends and it makes everything a OK. Oh, that's true. Like Although there I, it, is a problem with some of the things where um, apparently some of the minute endings require you to have like a higher um, uh, effective military strength which can't be gained with um, just the single player. Apparently, you need the multiplayer to increase your percentage over, like, 4,000 or something, because my max was, like, 7,000. Yeah. So um, 
my only worry is like in like 10 years, if I replayed the whole series and their servers are down, I'm gonna be stuck on 50% effective military strength the whole time. Well, I mean, that, that there's always the, the fair argument that, you know, multiplayer servers only exist for so long. Yeah. Although I feel like in that event, they'll say, hey, we patched it in so you can raise it through some other means. Yeah, I mean, or it just they stays told, at 100 yeah. now. Yeah, they totally did that for Demon's Souls. For, oh. Well, yeah, but that's Demon's Souls. It's a significantly smaller game, though not to down. Not to be down, Steven, but I really doubt that they'll actually have the foresight to actually do that. I, I don't know. Bio, Bioware has pretty damn good foresight, I'd say. Well, yeah, but, you know, the servers are updated and maintained by EA now, so, you know. Well, I mean, EA has pretty decent foresight, and it's not as if their servers don't exist for a long, long time. I understand 10 years. They're obviously not going to. Right. But, I mean, they they support, like, three or four years' worth of their sports game servers. I mean, it's it's you can go like play, I think, Madden 10 and still be football guy. <laughs> football guy? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to RPGfan.com. <laughs> football guy. All right, so, so Although to, we all like hockey, so. You should have stuck to hockey, John. We're a hockey website. So, so to yeah, bring, yeah, definitely. So to, so to bring it back to the, the single-player portion of the game, um, I, I think that what they've done is they've really continued to do exactly what we wanted them to do. I still feel a connection with characters. It's still a game based around talking to people and making decisions. I thought decisions. that was done. What's up? The character interaction, I thought it was great. Because like, in Mass Effect 2, it was mostly like, Shepard talking to the characters, but in this game, like you can walk in on like Garrus and Vega sharing war stories and stuff like that, and that was like one of my favorite parts of the game. Oh, my, my favorite, one of the best like... ones. So, uh, I, I, I was gonna say my favorite part in the whole game was when uh, it happened between Jacob and Garrus, and then again with Joker and Garrus, and they were exchanging jokes. And like oh, Joker, Joker and Garrus oh. making fun of each other's races was just hilarious. <laughs> That was awesome. I like the ones where they made fun of um, Shepard dancing. Oh, oh man, they make fun of his oh, yeah. dancing so much. Yeah, I laugh my. There's so I laugh a lot at that. <laughs> yeah, the the intro dialogues are just fantastic in that game. Like you know, yeah. everyone else pointed one they liked. At one point, you can walk into the kitchen and you see Javik or uh, what uh, Vega is cooking, and they're like talking about. Uh, they're telling jokes, and basically Vega keeps telling these really lame jokes. And then Javik makes up a totally nonsense joke that isn't funny, and Vega's like, ha ha, it's really funny! And he's like, no, you didn't. It's not funny. I made it up. <laughs> but I, 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 think, that. I think that what everyone is saying is, is one of the points that I tried to hit on in my review is that this game has absolutely amazing environmental storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, take, take even even dialogue between characters that aren't main characters. I know that every time I walked into the... Uh, the refugee camp i would walk by and i would listen to the the teenage girl talk to the security guard oh man that that was was sad. great that was small sad. stories like in front of um the purgatory um, bar where some girl is like uh, said she sold her car to pay for her friend's armor yeah and he figures it out over the course of like four visits and you're like oh man and i actually and the other thing too is it's not like that's limited like Throughout the game, you'll keep seeing new ones. And I mean, for me, every time I finished any sort of mission, like even if it was just a drop off his doodad with that guy, I went back to the ship and walked around to talk to everybody because that's just what I do. And every time there was something new, there were like two occasions in the whole game where they weren't saying something new to me. Yeah, a lot of people are complaining that Bioware didn't put a lot of um, like 
detail into the game, but then that's not true. You're just not looking in the right places for the details. But now I'm 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 going to disagree with you guys slightly. I think the stories that are being told are great. I mean, I was definitely moved by like walking through the Citadel and and overhearing these conversations. I mean, let, let's get this out of the way, like right right there. I mean, I know Yahtzee says it all the time, like Bioware is known for storytelling and character interactions. Like they're the best in the biz when it comes to that. So the character interactions were fine, but I did feel, especially in the Citadel, I did feel like it was a little pushed into my face and kind of forced like I would just be walking by and characters would just suddenly start talking and it, it didn't feel it didn't feel organic and and it maybe it's a limitation of the the nature of this game being a little bit more linear I mean it's not it's not a huge open world like Skyrim or Deus Ex where the storylines can kind of happen and you can stumble upon them they do kind of have to push them front and center but it's still it felt very artificial. And I, I, again, the stories that were being told were fine, but the way that they were pushed on me felt off. Well, see, I think that that was done to prevent things from becoming fragmented, like and having you listen to the very end of a story that means nothing to you. Right. You know? Right. No, that's yeah. that's fine. That's fine. It's just, you know, I, I, John and I talked a little bit about this the other day. I mean, I personally feel like the Citadel is clumsy. I feel like that a lot of people complained at the lack of the Citadel in the second game. I mean, everybody talks about they they loved interacting and walking around the Citadel in the first game, and they wanted to see that brought back. But I, I feel the way that Bioware has done it, where the Citadel basically amounts to some shops that you can shop at and some doodads that you can find in the environment and bring back to characters, it feels clumsy and doesn't quite work as well. I mean, I, I made the argument to John that if we're going to sit here and blast Kirkwall and Dragon Age 2 for feeling non-interactive and very stilted, you have to say the same thing about the Citadel. And I think it's worse than Kirkwall. I don't agree with that. Okay, I, that's I fine. That's, I why, that's why we talk about these things. I agree with <laughs> I agree with your point that, you know, like, like, you know, if we're going to do that, but I don't feel like the Citadel was that stilted. I mean, maybe I was being less critical because, again, I feel like, people got so invested in the story that maybe they were willing to overlook certain things, but I don't really feel like there was much to overlook, but I felt like the Citadel, you know, I mean, it was laid out intelligently and I felt like I could go in, check out the areas I needed. I'd spot stuff on the way there and then I could bounce out of there and, you know, not have to sit there wandering for an hour. Yeah. Like navigating, it was easier than in Mass Effect one for sure. Yeah. Mass Effect one's like, it was like a freaking maze. It took me like an hour to get, make sense of it all. Yeah, sometimes I, yeah. but but do you guys get what I'm saying where like it, it doesn't feel it, it, at least to me it doesn't feel real at all and, and that's not a problem I mean I, god there's so many environments in video games that don't feel real I mean it's it's not fair to sit here and and criticize a game that does so much well for that but I every return to the Citadel was like a hair pulling moment where it was like okay now I need to go check the stores real quick all right, let me let me try to find. Is there any? Did, did I find anything that I can now See, give to characters? Like it just yeah, didn't I never feel fun. Well, I mean, you're thinking of it in terms of quest lines, whereas in, instead of in terms of exploration, I suppose. Because I mean, like every time I went to the Citadel, I just ran around every place seeing if there was anything else I could hear or see. See, yeah, see and I never went looking for shops because I just used the one on the Normandy. And if you, if you wanted to, straight cash, homie. <laughs> <laughs> Plus ten percent, man. Ten percent discount. 
<laughs> you know, if you just wanted to look for quest hubs, actually, if you look at the map at the beginning of each, uh, if you you know go somewhere, like, hit the map, and it'll tell you all the important people that you would need to talk to in any given place. Yeah, I use that a lot. That was really helpful. Well, I didn't know I had a map until the final mission. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> speaking of the quest lines and stuff, that really irritated me about the game. In Mass Effect 3, there is a lot. Uh, the quest log does not update properly when you um. Go to particular ladies of the quest. For example, if you got a doodad, um, it it doesn't update your quest log to tell you uh, that you already got the doodad and you should bring it to somebody in the citadel or whatever. It just like it just keeps yeah. on the first page of the quest log. Unlike in Mass Effect One and Two, when it where it did update the quest log and you knew exactly where you were in the quest. In Mass Effect Three, you're at a complete loss if you like come back say like. A month later. Not only that, but there's no inventory, so you can't look and see if you have the doodads. So you're just like, all right, I guess I'll go talk to that guy. That's my biggest issue with Mass Effect 3, is that from a pure, like, design UI implementation, I think the game is needlessly obtuse and silly it's not fun to try to remember what weapons i have equipped on my partners granted i can swap out you know any pistol as long as they have a pistol slot and so it's not really that big a deal to decide which type of pistol to upgrade but it, it's just it, there's really bad inventory management there, there's there's moments where the codex doesn't match up with the with the it's not consistent with itself in one area it labels things in this manner in another area it labels things like this the point that ashton's making where the journal doesn't update and so you have no idea where to go sometimes or whether or not you have said doodad that you need to do i think all of these these problems really started to compound and i think to an extent you could make an argument that i was i wasn't seeing the forest through the trees and i was letting them really get me down but it just kept you know, this lingering issue in the back of my head kept coming up that they kind of rushed this area of the game, and it's not very fun to interact with the tools and the UI outside of combat. I think the combat tools are fine, but the exploration tools that they have set up and the ways that you can interact with your party and pick skills and equip weapons, I mean, it it's just barely passable at best, and it was very obnoxious. Anytime I was in a menu in this game, I was annoyed. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with that because um, the, aside from the quest log thing, which is really annoying, by the way, I agree. But everything yeah. else in the game was pretty intuitive for me. I mean, like l um, learning the abilities and equipping the weapons is actually pretty pretty intuitive. I was I didn't have any, really any problems with it. Well, for example, like the the sniper rifle enhancement is supposed to give you like a incremental uh, upgrades to the amount of time that slow the amount the length of time the time slows down when you use a sniper rifle. But when you apply those attachments, it doesn't change the number in the skill menu when you look at your individual like character statistics which is obnoxious because i think the skill menu is perfect like they tell you how long you have for a skill to recharge how much damage it does how effective it is but then like the weapon attachments yeah, that you attach you don't know how those are impacting the skills it's like well what does that mean to have plus 35 percent time dilation is that in addition to the to what i already have like it, it just feels like at times Mass Effect, and, and this will get to the ending discussion in a little bit, it feels at times like Mass Effect was being made by a lot of people, which I think it was. It but, was. But it no was. one was talking to each other. And so one guy thought, well, I'm going to do it like this. The other guy thought, well, I'm going to do it like this. And there was no conversation between the two of them. 
Well, I think in the process of trying to simplify everything, because everything comes out to like progress bars instead of like actual hard numbers, which I feel like was is actually a good idea because numbers actually turn people off, which was one of the things that annoyed me about the first Mass Effect. There was way too much stuff for me to deal with um, on a regular basis, I mean. But Mass Effect 3 simplified it so much that some of the things like couldn't come together and like really let you know what how they interacted with each other. Can anybody explain reputation to me? What, what do you mean? What's that number like that I get? Bar? What what oh, is reputation? When you get just reputation, it goes towards whatever you're more inclined towards. So like if you get five Does... reputation and you're mostly paragon, you get five reputation gives you five paragon points. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works, I think. Oh, okay. They didn't and I, I you know what? I'm gonna play, you know, I adore this game, and whenever Rob points out a flaw, I tend to just be like, nope. And <laughs> I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to be, you know, I, I, I'm i on Ashton's side in that I didn't have any problems with it, but I think Rob does make legitimate complaints that I did see. They just didn't bother me personally. Like, right. They're not you pointed egregious. Out, like, you, you went to go upgrade weapons, and they're like, I don't know what weapons my teammates have equipped. And unless you go all the way up to Shepard's bedroom, you can't look at your squad mates' weapons if you're not on a mission. So I do understand that parts of it are obtuse. I just feel like I either I didn't care enough or for me, I only upgraded weapons. You know, I would go and I'd be like, all right, I know who has what because we're all wearing the, the same thing. Right. For, I, these yeah. are not problems that kill the game. Please don't. You know, I, I'm, I'm obviously being, you know, devil's advocate with the game and I'm pointing things out. These are not issues that fundamentally break the game. We are not talking about scenarios where, like, I, I got a game over screen because I didn't see how much time dilation I had. Like, it, it's not that bad, but it does make for an unpleasant game experience and it makes it so that like there were points where i was just not uh, i'm looking at a meter or i'm looking at a bar and i'm like i don't want to look at this right now like i don't it the ui feels clumsy but let's get away from that because that's not the biggest issue what's really cool about this game and i'm doing this because i hope that the fan emails liz again to complain about this it's really fun (laughs) to shoot aliens in the face in this game no and it feels awesome or charge them to the face yeah like speaking of faces you know one of the things that really annoyed me, I mean, I, I, if whenever my review goes up, everybody will know that I loved the hell out of this game, and I don't really mind the ending at all, et cetera, et cetera. I love the hell out of this game. It's like it's probably my favorite game of this generation. But the the um when you import a character from Mass Effect Two, the face doesn't import correctly. I don't know. That yeah, that's know. only if it was a character that existed from Mass Effect One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but see, the thing Wait, here really? is that if you tried to have it like um, a linear like carry over a story from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 3, it gets really annoying because I had to, like, bro- jump through all these hoops to get the specific character code for my Mass Effect 1 character and then, like, insert it into the Mass Effect 3 save file, and it was just really weird. I mean, I don't know if they're going to patch it sometime soon, but it's it's just kind of lazy. So they're looking into it, yeah. Is that with every single save? Because I didn't have every single Mass Effect one save. Yes. Oh, you know why? I, I have I use generic Shepard's face because I think all the other ones look goofy as hell. But <laughs> I guess that's I, people were talking about, it and I was like, I was able to import my face, and then I was like, oh, that's right, I just have Genero face. Yeah, I couldn't do that either on the Xbox, so I just use default female Shepard. If it, I actually kind of wanted to address a positive point. Um, before the game came out and like when two came out, everyone's like, oh, they took out all the customization in the RPG. And I just wanted to point out that they absolutely brought it back and struck a totally sweet balance between actually being able to customize and, you know, 
not overdo it. Feel like, yeah, but yeah, on the other hand, I you agree. didn't have Mass Effect 1 where I had 800 you know, hand <laughs> rifles and shoulder pads. I, I completely agree. So I think it has struck an incredible balance in between customization and ease of use. Yeah, you had way too much stuff in Mass Effect 1. It's like, uh, okay, after a while, you sold them all and you had maxed out credits. And, and then it's after just that, pink armor. you just like put that into Omni, Omni Gel and then like you had maxed out Omni Gel. <laughs> yeah. And then my, I saved for Mass Effect 1 that I brought over into Mass Effect 3. I had maxed out credits, maxed out Omni Gel, maxed out Meta Gel, maxed out everything. And I was just like throwing weapons away. I'm all like, oh, don't need this. Throw it off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found that you barely had to buy stuff in Mass Effect 1 because you would just find it. And I was I sold so much stuff. I maxed out like a couple of missions before the yeah, end. The only thing you really needed to buy was the Spectre equipment. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's the only thing I had to buy. And even I, then, you just buy a shotgun and shoot things from across this planet. Well, I think Stephen exactly. Stephen's assessment is 100% correct. I mean, a lot of people were really down on Mass Effect 2. They're like, "Oh, you took away all the RPG elements. You took away everything." Blah. And they really brought a lot of it back. I mean, for example, they brought back the Citadel. Yeah. They brought back those character interactions. They allowed you to put on weapon modifiers, and like, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the game. And I. They really wanted to strike a balance with this. They really wanted to say, all right, we heard your criticisms. I think Bioware has been really good about that, keeping my fingers crossed over here that they're going to hear those criticisms for Dragon Age 3. And they they really made an awesome game in that respect. And, you know, hats off to them. That was a great part of Mass Effect 3. Yeah, they struck a really nice balance for this game. It's probably like, um, it was, yeah, out of um, Bioware's RPGs, it's probably one of my favorites. It's probably because Garrus did all that calibration in the second one. There's a, there's a, okay, actually, wait, wait, wait. I, I want to cut everyone off right there. One thing that I think that Mass Effect does wrong is it goes into way too many self-referential memes. Really? I like, thought that was really? hilarious. I, I don't like that. Like, it's funny once or twice, but I think that there are too many of them in Mass Effect 3. Oh, right. Yeah, that, that that is kind of true. Like, a lot of the things you won't get unless you play Mass Effect 1 or 2, which to a certain extent is um, acceptable. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing for newbie players. I don't care about that. I thought it was annoying because it was like, yeah, I know this is funny. People talked about this stuff on the Internet, but you're bringing it up over and over and over again. But see, well, yeah, I, I get what you're talking about. It's kind of like beating a dead horse I mean, with jokes. I didn't it's kind have, of like the all your base meme. I didn't have too many instances of that. The two moments that really stood out for me in the game, and, and these aren't spoilers, but like Tally was my love interest for my shepherd. And so like when when they're reunited and like they're oh, kind man. of they're kind of gushing <laughs> on the mission and whatnot, and Garrus <laughs> just pipes up and he's just like, um, guys, I was there for all of this. Can you just get a room? Like, <laughs> well, like that sort of thing is funny, but right. like. The, yeah. There there are some of the moments that, that aren't because it's like, oh, her, her calibrations. Calibrations came up like eight times. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, I didn't see any of that. Now, the, now, the other, then there was, the other thing was that Garrus's, um, Garrus's moment where he's like, this is my favorite spot on the Citadel. And oh, yeah, that was awesome. That was pretty funny, but <laughs> I think the shepherd. Now, the, the, when the game makes references to things that have happened previously, those are fantastic. My my uh, shepherd romanced Ashley in the first game and Tally in the second game. Oh boy! And I accidentally bought them both on a mission, and they had like a little cat fight beforehand. Really? <laughs> That's awesome. It was Liara and Tally, and I romanced um, Liara before I actually met Tally in the third game. And then um, 
when I brought the two on a mission and Tally is all like, oh, I put it behind me and I hope you two are very happy together and stuff. That's yeah, no, awesome. I, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. That, that's like the that's like the Morgan and Wynn stuff in Dragon Age Origins, where like Liliana, you couldn't. You I wish Garrison Caden had that. Right, but you couldn't you couldn't romance Wynn, but she would just sit there and say like I don't approve, and Morgan would just basically be like you know please shut the hell up, like that that's where Bioware really nails it. I mean we we're in terms of story, it's like eh, you know kind of hit or miss. I'm not a fan of every Bioware story, but the characters you can't help but love these characters. But I, I will say I was very disappointed with the number of squad mates and one in particular who is so sci-fi cliched. I had no desire to have this individual on any mission. I absolutely I despise one. her. I love that. I love that squad mate. Really? Yeah. Right. She's Wait, okay, so lame. Right. Wait, wait. So let we're we're going into more spoiler territory. Do we but want the to do point it? That we're well, you know what? Let, let's go ahead and say now we're heading into spoiler territory. Spoilers. Uh, yeah. So we're we're going to progress gradually, but we're gonna mark this. This is where spoilers begin. If you haven't beaten the game, beware. Yes. Find your iPod right now. If you're listening to this, like we're gonna give you a second to kind of fumble around for it. Go pre-order yourself a copy of Diablo Three. Yes. Be good to go. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I had to get a reference in there. Okay, so here we go. Spoiler time. Okay. Really? Right. You like Edie? Are you crazy? Dude, she was she had a hilarious personality and was... she was there to draw the contrast between the fact that the Reapers are like these super evil synthetics and she's like this AI that's learning how Plus, it was like channeling the Terminator storyline, which is amazing. No, that's fine. No, no, no. Her character is fine. But putting her into a body and having her come along with you with a gun, that's just stupid. Just let her be like the cool voice character that you talk to. Yeah, how, how are you supposed to have all those hilarious moments where Joker's basically talking about banging her? And you're like, yeah, go for it. I mean, I did every time. I was like, go for it. Yeah, do I'm, it. I'm sorry, Stephen. I have to agree with Rob here a little bit because I actually got ED at first. And I'm all like, okay, um. Because during that reveal, I'm all like, oh, crap, something bad's going to happen. And then Edie walks out, I'm all like, really? Really? Really, Bioware? I actually kind of thought it was coming. Because I I guess my roommate found... Sorry, go ahead. Liz? Liz? Oh, no, I was just saying, I I knew it was coming because I got spoiled for that. So as soon as that happened with the Dr. Eva, whatever her name is, I was like, oh, God, Edie's going to possess her body. And there you go. So predictable. Uh, well, I wouldn't have minded yeah. if it was just like this, like framework, like a Terminator body. But the fact that they have had to make her so like boobs, know, voluptuous. Yeah. Vol- yeah. Yeah, the, I love the I love the game's radar review where they they talk about how the camera gets conspicuously placed at times to just like stare Miranda. at a girl's top or her butt. Like every scene with Miranda, we just need to swing that yeah, camera yeah, around and show much. her butt. The whole reason I wrote master. So I mean, one yeah. one thing I find interesting is Rob, you said there's this one generic sci-fi character, and I thought you were talking about Vega because every sci-fi movie has that who big Vega, who James Vega. James oh oh James yeah. Oh loco Sparky. Loco. You mean Freddie Prince Jr. I don't care. <laughs> so you know but what? no like that to to me that was the egregious generic character that you know because every sci-fi film has the meathead. Oh, I love guns, guy, and that—that th- that was James Vega. Okay, I find him, I found him so disposable that I didn't think about him at all. I took him on one mission, but no, John, you're right. I just I despised him so much that I blocked him out of my memory. Thanks for bringing him back. I'm gonna drink some alcohol over here and try to kill him <laughs> again. I do uh, feel like James was pandering a bit, like 
Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, well, we're trying to sell this game to more bros, and we put in this option where you can ignore the story, you know, the best part of the game. Yeah, it's kind of that, that weird Jersey Shore crap that you've been Yeah, and it's like, oh, well, we need someone to be. <laughs> Dude, he is Jersey Shore. I didn't even think of that. He, he's the size Between him, he's between the size, him and Diane Allers. He's the size of Chris Redfield from, Final, from uh, Resident Evil 5. Dude is a... That now we're getting some we're getting some feedback. Yeah, what's going on here? DOS feedback. All right, <laughs> nah, I didn't even realize the Jersey Shore reference with James, but like I, I love the fact that James is the size of Chris Redfield with like eating a little bit more. Like, uh, but I, I think the character selection, like I loved having Garrus back. I loved having Tally back. Liara, I didn't give a crap about her, but like. The character selection, when you compared it to Mass Effect 2, which, like, and in Mass Effect 3's defense, they actually gave Jack some funny lines, and she had me cracking up. Like, she was actually kind of okay in this game. Yeah, I, yeah that prom line is really funny. She had yeah. a really good line if you romanced Garrus and you had Garrus with you when you met her. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> what what did she funny. say? Well, she, I, um... I, it, if you bring Garrus and then she snaps at Shepard and Garrus is like, oh, charming as ever. And Jack's like, bite me. Better yet, bite Shepard. I bet she likes it that way. Oh, yeah. Curious. I I have to disagree with you there, Rob, though. You know what? Mass Effect 2's 10 or 11 or however many different uh, deals. Was it 12? Yeah. Yeah, it was. One of the trailers was the Dirty Dozen. So, yeah, 12. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you have this obscene amount of characters that truly you can't take on every mission and while they did have their own missions that you had to go on a mission with every single character at least once i was happy with my six characters from mass effect and it's not like the other characters didn't show up i mean like okay, okay. i'll make this argument morden was you know, treated I have, awesomely i have yeah. no problem with the way that morden was treated no i, I have no problem with that but i wanted more of him like, I, I, I'm, but, I'm not complaining. No, 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 don't get me wrong. But, I'm not complaining about the way characters were handled. I'm complaining about just the immediate cast, just the five characters that you can choose. Like, I only liked two of them, so I always brought them. I didn't like anybody else out of the, out of the right. five characters. Well, I mean, so you take those two guys, like, you know, for, for me, like, you, 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 you couldn't have Morden be a playable character. Right. You know, because he dies halfway through the game. Well, true, but yeah. what, but what I'm saying is that I didn't feel like, you know, it, there were characters in Mass Effect 2 that I hated and characters that I liked, but the number of characters I liked outweighed the number of characters that I didn't like that I could choose for missions. But in Mass Effect 3, I only like Tally and Garrus. I don't give a crap about the other three characters, and they feel disposable. I'm not complaining about the endings for characters. I'm complaining about, I think that the immediate choice of squad members is very limited, and I did not like them nearly as much as the wide range in Mass Effect 2. Well, I felt like I was seven a seven characters to, to choose in Mass Effect 3, though. What's that? There's seven, seven characters. characters. Okay, I only had five. Who was Did I? you not there's, let? There's six there, in Shepard. There's six minus. Well, are, are you guys including Javik as the DLC character, or yeah. I was I including Javik, but I didn't get him. Even and without Javik, there's Kate six. Vermeer's Vermeer survivor. Okay, I, ne I never got Ashley, so I had Liara, Tally, Garrus, um, Liara, Edie? Tally, Garrus, uh, James. Edie. And Edie. and Edie, that was it. Okay, so I don't, I don't know why you didn't have your Vermeer survivor unless you told them to to know you didn't want them. Uh, or you I, think so. I think so. I think so because Ashley was pissing me off. 
<laughs> I mean, that's what she ever does. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, it, it's a minor complaint, but I just for, let's get back to the main point. Edie sucks. Sorry. Nope. Edie oh, sucks. Please. She's terrible. Edie's She's a giant and plastic it's... set of TNA. Like really? She has a cool okay, visor. Um, speaking of the re- um, playable characters, uh, what did what did everyone think about the Prothean um, char- uh, squad ma- member? Well. Like, you know okay. what, Stephen and I will, di- are, we're going to disagree greatly, Stephen and I, because I I found that, now, let's be fair, I don't know when Stephen picked up Javik. The way that I played Javik's DLC, because I played the game before it came out, Javik wasn't available. To me, Javik was post-game DLC. I beat the game, and then I got Javik. Right. And in that aspect, he's awful, because you get the one mission, and that's it. Right. Yeah. But I mean, Javik as a character. I mean, like, um, it's fun. It's fun that you got him after the game, but he no, no, was obviously but, meant but to I, be like, you know. But I'm, I'm saying, I, but what I'm saying is, well, if he's meant to be part of the game, why is he DLC? Ooh. He should have his own standalone story if he's a piece of DLC, like he does. But it's like 20 minutes long, if that, and that includes the time that you're shooting random, random Cerberus guys. I think you're, I agree completely, John. See, I bought Javik literally before I even started the game up. Like, you know, I said, all right, I know I want the Prothean, I'm going to buy him now. And in that regard, he's fantastic because he's fully integrated because, you know, he was already in the game. But, uh, you know, the mission, if I, I completely think you're right. If you bought that mission after you beat the game, you got screwed because the mission is terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's literally just, yeah, shoot some guys. All right, go ahead. Oh, wait, there's one small thing that gives you some more assets. And then it's like, here's Javik, and he's never going to talk to anybody about anything again. Yeah, pretty much. That That's how it showed up for me. Yeah. If, if you like, play to like, the um, the people who bought it at release or bought the collector's edition, um, Javik actually uh, appears pretty early in the story, and um, he actually offers a lot of insight to the... Um, at certain uh, story points, like, for example, the ancestors of the current races, like, he would have, like, these um, yeah. lines about how oh, like Solarian livers how... were really, yeah, Solarian livers were a delicacy in his time or something. <laughs> and he also gave insight onto the into the Protheans. I mean, like, when Mass Effect 1 and 2, yeah. we assumed that Protheans were all this, like, majestic, kind species, but then oh. Javik comes along, and they're, uh, he tells us that they're, like, a bunch of imperialistic, you know, douchebags. Yeah, like, I I definitely, go ahead, sorry. If you guys play the game again, apparently, I forgot to do this, but apparently you want to take him on the Thessia mission because he's got a lot of interesting commentary there Mm. because it's about Prothean Prothean stuff and uh, history. And he had some, yeah, like Ashton said, he had some other good comments too, like Solarians used to eat flies and other other silly stuff. And then Liera gets all fangirlish, like, she keeps asking him things, and he's like, stop bugging me. And so he, he had some to... funny stuff, too. Like, you know, the joke with uh, Vega, and, like, when Tally gets oh, drunk she... at one point, he, she calls him and starts trolling him over the phone. She's like, oh, you're <laughs> a no, super... I that, I that. Huh? So is he Man, kind of... Is he kind of filling that Bioware funny role, like Shale from Dragon Age or uh, Rex from the original Mass Effect? Is, is he kind of filling in that role of, like, the funny kind of... You know, he's not funny overall, but there's these these kind of awkward, like funny moments. Pan, snarker kind of guy. Yeah, he's yeah. he's very grim dark, but he'll occasionally tell like a funny joke, or he'll like 
he'll interact with somebody, and because he's such a jerk, it comes off funny. So now, yeah, how does exactly. how does he fit in if if the Protheans are all dead? How the hell is he in the game? You, you go to Eden Prime, and guess what? He survived in one of those stasis pods when all the others ran out of energy on that one planet. Really? Because they all, all their energy. Yeah, the, the entire the energy of the entire complex was focused onto his single um, stasis spot, and that's why it survived. Oh, I'm sorry. I found that, it beforehand. Ugh. Okay, I'm sorry. That sound you guys just heard were my eyes rolling all the way back in my head. <laughs> like, really? You need to pick them off the ground again, Rob. Okay. That, <laughs> I, I, but I think that that uh, – another segue here. I, I think overall Mass Effect 3 is very well written, but there there are – before we get to the ending, there are instances that I have a problem with. Like, for example, a lot of people have complained about the, the lack of urgency, the fact that in the first 10 minutes of this game we see Reapers invade Earth. It's like, it's going down, man. It's going to happen. We didn't listen. It's the end of the world. Shepard, go round up the troops. What? Go round up the troops, just like you did in Mass Effect 2. Go, go, go on. Go on. Go, go find all the doodads. And like, <laughs> admittedly, you go to different planets and you get to see the impact of the Reaper invasion for the most part. Like they do really cool things on Thessia. You you get to see the Krogans and Turians fighting with with the Reapers. That stuff's good, but there there is a lack of urgency that I think is was a real missed opportunity for this game. Like they they've been hyping up this this Reaper invasion, and it really doesn't change things dramatically from the way Mass Effect is structured. And you know what? I think it would be different if it were if it were postured in a way where okay, like the it, it's a slow burn. The the Reapers are blockading Earth. No one can get in or get out. You need to go and get everyone. But it's not. It's in the first you know, like you said, ten minutes of the game. Like they've destroyed entire cities. Yeah, it's it's yeah. all like it it's it's they've invaded their oh that that remind me to ask a question here in a second they've invaded like they you see reapers all over the galaxy map it's like all of a sudden they're here like it's time to go and i think john's right they they missed an opportunity worth like the slow burn just like they did with dragon age origins where like the dark spawn are marching on humanity so it's your job to go get everyone ready instead of wow they just obliterated london and san francisco well, time to go get the band together. Like, that just, it feels wrong. Here's my question. It never happened to me, but you can go to different areas on the galaxy map, and you you scan to get doodads, and the Reapers can, like, find you. What happens if the Reapers get a hold of you? You, you, game you over. have to run away, basically. They just give you a game over? That's it? Yeah, if they if they catch you, you get a game over. What? And you, yeah. and, and you reload right at the beginning of that galaxy. So there's yeah, that is... It's... <laughs> Well, what did you expect was going to happen, man? Let me play devil's advocate. What do you want them to do? Like a mini combat scenario. Like, I don't know, a random encounter. How about something like that? That's stupid. <laughs> that's the name of our podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty dumb, guys. That, that... No, no, I, I agree with you. I, I do. Like, uh, honestly, the whole I, I didn't touch on this in my review because I thought it was very, very minor. But the whole Reapers find you when you're scanning doodads kind of annoying yeah especially since you can only like scan like twice before all the reapers find out and they're all like ah this guy's scanning time to come after him send 50 guys yeah. he's going after the obelisk of something or other <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, kind of, it has that like kind of the um the old shen it has a more pronounced version of the shenmue problem where it, um he's all like i'm going to avenge my father after i play with this kitten and drink this soda and play with these toys 
and drive a forklift for two months. <laughs> oh, I quit the game there. I was like, yeah, I'm done. I but, worked already. I think the individual storylines are great. I mean, you, you definitely have some huge impact on the world, and you make huge decisions that go all the way back to Mass Effect 1 and 2. That stuff is great, but I do feel like the overall way that the narrative was framed, and especially given the start of the game, where it's like the, the whole world has just been invaded, like the game lacks urgency because of that. And, and so you feel like you should be in the middle of like the London battle that rounds out the whole game, but you're not there until like 25 hours later. Now they pass it off as like the Reapers requiring decades or uh, centuries in order to like, you know, harvest all civilizations. But near the end of the game, they say that the Reapers are preparing to finalize their harvest. And it's all like, well, I mean, that's pretty urgent. That didn't take centuries at all. Yeah, yeah, and when they crashed, it, landed in Vancouver in the beginning, I mean, they started working like pretty quickly there. Yeah, I mean, they were they were toasting people. Decades to me. Yeah, uh, they knocked they knocked Thessia down in what like an hour. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I, I, uh, uh, but then again, it's it's really hard to create a narrative of that structure. So like, we can overlook things like that. That that's fine. I can kind of let that go. Are we ready to talk? Yeah, about I think it? it's time to address the elephant in the room. Which is hang on a second. I have to go get six beers. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Because everybody. I'm gonna need some vodka, man. Everybody needs yeah, to hear because on our editors' boards, Stephen. <laughs> like metamorphosized into me where his anger rage i mean i'm not even that mad over the ending of mass effect 3 because you know i like the mass effect universe but i'm not invested in it i think the ending is stupid but it doesn't offend me the way that it offends steven (laughs) steven and i actually had a few conversations about this and while i wasn't as negative of about it as Steven was. <laughs> I'm like the biggest Mass Effect fan you can find. If you come into my room, like my whole shelf is full of Mass Effect stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, sorry. I am you. not a huge, like, you know, supporter of the ending. I, I, small anecdote, small digression. Ashton is such a big fan that the night it was coming out, I was like, I'm going to get my copy at midnight. He said, I can't pick up mine until tomorrow. And I said, you should just buy it on Origin. And he goes, but I've already bought three copies. And I go, you should just buy it on Origin. And sure enough, he bought it on Origin. <laughs> yeah, that happened. So you're welcome, Bioware. So I he... thought my two copies was bad. Yeah, so I bought the three copies with the collector's editions, too. So I preloaded the game the night before I got the three collector's editions. I spent like $500 on this game. That's $300, man. Your math is off. So here is the here's the way that the ending happened for me. I'm I'm just going to give an anecdotal way that I experienced the ending, which was I beat the game kind of last. I was like the last person to beat it. So everybody, uh, you know, I saw all the spoiler tags on our boards and I was like, OK, I'll, I'll see the ending. Everybody's complaining about it. It can't possibly be that bad. And, well. <laughs> and, and so I you beat the game. And there's this really tender moment between Shepard and Anderson as they're they're on the Citadel and they're looking down at Earth. And it's like this feeling of like everything is going to be OK. We, we've gotten the deus ex machina to, to beat the Reapers. Everything's going to be fine. It's this, it's this real character moment. And I was like, 
oh, that's why everyone's mad because it's like it's kind of a downer. It's it's like it it's feeling out this kind of these two characters that you've spent so much time with. It's going to end with Shepard's death, so it's the end of Shepard's story. We're not going to see anything else. I totally see why everybody's upset with that. They're just I, I was sitting there going like, you Philistines, you don't see you know you don't see what Bioware's done here. You know, and then, and then, the, and then Adam <laughs> Jensen punches the wall down and goes, "I never asked for this." And you get. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what happens. Here's what happens. Anything, uh, the space elevator opens up. It brings <laughs> Shepard up into some weird, um, you know, into space, mind you, and he's not wearing a helmet or anything. Let's. Well, he's not into space. He went into a different compartment of like either the Citadel or the Catalyst or whatever. Whatever. And then like open. So he goes up into like this weird compartment, and then like a star child appears. And this star child tells him, "Oh yeah, we made some synthetics, and we started killing all advanced civilizations because we didn't want synthetics ruling over everything. And now you have to choose between three equally terrible, weird choices." Bye. And you don't get to ask any questions. It's just you need to. It's explained very poorly. It's just like yes, you must decide whether all synthetics die, whether you can control the synthetics, or whether or not everyone will live in harmony through space now, magic. One one thing that I thought was interesting, one theory that I saw was that Shepard was being indoctrinated at that point. That would actually be awesome. Theory. It is yeah. an interesting theory. Like Casey Hudson basically disproved it because he pointed out, you know, this is all for reals. But it was an interesting theory, although I poked holes in that too. Because there I, is a, there is also a rumor going around right now that they're going to be releasing DLC for the uh, for an actual ending called The Truth uh, in a month. That's like a huge rumor. Like I think it started on Reddit or something, and I don't know if I'm gonna put any. Uh, yeah, I'm not putting any stock that. in that. But you know, I. Yeah, that's so. So the problem that everybody has is that. It's not the fact that you're given three choices at the end of the game. Well, two, and then you can you have the possibility of a third if you fill out some some awkward requirements. No one really knows a hundred percent how these endings work yet. I've seen, I've read like three different wiki articles, and they all have conflicting reports. Whatever. The fact of the matter is that you get a, a simple number of choices at the end of the game that don't. Before we get to Steven's plot holes, they <laughs> they don't rely on anything that you've done previously it doesn't matter if you sided with the quarians over the geth it doesn't matter if you cho if you chose to cure the genophage or shot morden in the face or shot morden in the face it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter if you managed to talk the elusive man into shooting himself which is pretty awesome but just like it yeah. parallels with saren which is amazing yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that. Even though I, I shot him myself, I like that there is... <laughs> you know, I shot him Although, in the face, but it's nice that he... I did have a problem with the... <laughs> I did have a problem with the elusive man choice, though, because you have to commit a renegade action to kill him. Otherwise, the game kills you and you get a game over. I feel like... Okay, I did not know that, so that's weird. I feel like towards the end of the game, they started taking renegade and paragon, and instead of using them as these are ways to express your morality and they just started using them as oh yeah this is the button you need to press to do a reaction command like QT. when, when kyling attacks you kyling's getting ready to stab you i took the renegade option and there's nothing renegade about breaking the sword of a man who just killed one of your closest friends and stopping him from killing you i would agree. and the and the paragon option is just it's identical but instead of punching the sword you just turn around and stab him so it felt like it wasn't really a re what is renegade about killing the man that's about to try to stab you in the back 
And I feel like the same thing with the elusive man. It's it's not renegade to stop a guy from shooting you in the face. It's, you know, how it works. Mm. No, I, I don't think any of us will disagree with that. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I would. Agree. Well, I think Kai Lang is a is a bigger issue, but what, I don't even want to talk about a, a meaningless uh. character that's been thrown into the game to be an antagonist. So so to get to the, the point of the problem of the ending is that you have these choices that aren't impacted by anything that you've done before. You get a slightly different cutscene at the end of the game. You get the Normandy somehow traveling through space and ending up on another planet with some weird... Like, the, 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 the one yeah. that I don't get is that the people that are on that, some of them were on the mission with me. Yep. On Earth. Yeah. And I was oh, like, yeah. what? Garrus was with oh, me. And let's... Garrus got off to Normandy. I was like, how did you get on the Normandy so fast? This is a worse for me. Garrus and Liara was with me. And then in the ending, they can come out of the ship. I'm all like, where were you when I was like jumping into the beam of light? Oh, wait. Let's not forget that they all got shot in the face by a harbinger beam, which instantaneously killed every single person except for Shepard. Yeah, well, well, to go along with, well, I could make a gameplay complaint right now, but we're talking about the endings. No, it, it's just the fact that here's the here's the real issue with the ending, and, and John and I talked about this. The real issue with the ending is that it feels like another sci-fi writer came in and wrote the last 20 minutes of Mass Effect 3. That is what happened. Where, where Mass Effect has been a series very much in the vein of Star Trek or Babylon 5, which is hard science fiction with a focus on the racial tensions created by different species in space. And then it's like all of a sudden another writer came in. They had just had a lot of meth and had just gotten done watching 2001. And they said, you know what? That's the ending we're going through for this ethereal function of human consciousness over being. And it's like, that's fine if that's the kind of sci fi that you want to do. But it you doesn't have to execute it. No, no, no. That's not the problem. The problem is the disconnect the dissonance with the rest of the mass effect universe which up until this point has been hard sci-fi it hasn't been ethereal it hasn't been you know this this quest for knowledge or this this more abstract line of thought it's been hard sci-fi and so you can't suddenly come in and do an ending that is completely off the wall in 2001 to the rest of mass effects babylon 5 it doesn't work that, um, I think, Steven, is the problem. Stephen and I have actually talked about this at length before, and I've um, put forth some of my um, arguments about the ending thematically and conceptually. And I actually think that thematically and conceptually, the ending is actually really interesting. It provokes a lot of thought, and um, it, it actually like leads... The, the themes that are prevalent throughout the storylines in Mass Effect 1 and 2 about like synthetics and organics and things like that they actually lead into the ending quite well. It's just that the execution was really bad. Terrible. And yeah, and it didn't give any closure is the problem because it shows a lot of lights and then the normally crashing and that's it. It doesn't show really the ramifications of like everything that you do. And I mean, there's a lot of things that you could infer from the ending sequence but i mean like you know none of it really matters in the long run because there's no closure to anything at all yeah now I, I, I would agree. It feels like they were – it's cool to create an ending that people are going to talk about. I mean that that's fine. I, I actually like it when endings are kind of 
you know, uh, challenging the viewer. I think that's totally great. I mean, look at the ending of Inception, for example. I love those kind of endings. But it feels like they were ending this game that really didn't have any of these quandaries about these different ideas going on. They ended it to create questions rather than leading up to those questions rather than, and I see Ashton's point and I will agree that there is there. You could say there's an overarching theme about synthetics versus organics in the whole series, but I don't think the game was set up for that to be the final real come away from the whole series. I don't feel like that's what they were doing. It feels like they were just saying, how can we make this the most controversial ending possible? Oh, here's how we do it. Not only that, but I'm going to get into just one or two things here. Oh boy. They not, not only does it not set up a synthetics will always destroy organics contrast. A main mission in the story. If you get the best ending to it actively says that, Synthetics and humans working together is beneficial to both of them because if you help the Geth and then you stop them from killing the Quarians, they both end up living in this like idealistic society where the Geth are like uploaded into their suits and like totally helping out and helping them get used to the new environment. And yeah, and with, with this ending here, you know, but well, I mean, that's the point, though. I mean, you in the ending, the um, the star child or the the first species, if you will. I mean, they say that um, they their ultimate conclusion was that synthetic life will destroy all organic life. And through the story, you've already proven that that's not true. And the crucible has opened them up to new possibilities for that fact. And um, the whole point is to change the galaxy so that that isn't the final result. You in a, but a mission you have done in the past, which made no indication that that was a possible outcome, actively says that that's not necessary because well, you've. That's Commander exactly Shepard, the point. You've disproven the cause of the Reapers, and that's why the new possibilities are open. Well, what about the, the, new, the thing is? I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting everybody. No, no, it's fine. The, Go ahead, Stephen. You feel the. The most thing is, this. you're doing that, but you're actively saying that what you've done in the past doesn't matter. You're opening up to new possibilities, but by doing that. If that were the case, if he said, okay, you've proven that that's possible, he wouldn't say, now we have to reset the galaxy to zero and totally change everything, which could change the circumstances and put them back in the position they were in before. You know what the problem is here, guys? We are having the exact same conversation that people were having in, what was it, 2000? Was it 2000 or 2001 when the new Matrix movies came out? And you had exposition for the sake of exposition. What the star child is saying makes no cognitive sense. All synthetic life will destroy all organic life. So that's why we created synthetic life to destroy all your organic life. Well, no, it was what? to destroy yeah. it was no no, it was to destroy advanced organic life because oh. they leave people alone every cycle so that life still exists. Oh. But not right. life that can create the most advanced synthetic life. Uh, yeah, they're preserving the existence of organics by destroying the advanced civilizations that have the potential to create synthetic life. Well, 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 what a lot of people are actually doing right now is oversimplifying the actual ending and what the Star Child says. The synthetics aren't out. The, the Reapers aren't out to destroy all organic life. They're out to destroy advanced organic life that might give rise to synthetic life that will eventually cause, like you know, what is known in um, science. It's science fan circles as a technological singularity. No, I, I get that, but I, 
I don't feel like the game was leading up to that point. It's fine to have this theme, and I'll agree with you, Ashton, that that is a theme between some of the character interactions that are going on in the game. I mean, we've already said Geth, Quarians, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I see that. But the biggest problem that I, I have with this ending is that it's so abrupt, it's so out of left field, that's the final thing that they want you to take away from Mass Effect, not the personalization of the story, not the different adventures that you've had, that the differences between my story about Shepard and your story about Shepard. It all comes down to this one choice that was laid out that I didn't have any any real impact on. I just get to that final choice. If we want to sit here and have a dialogue about whether or not, you know, this star child and his idea of synthetic versus organic life, that's totally fine. But it's so out of left field given the entire nature of the rest of the series in terms of decision making and in terms and in that sense, the idea is perfectly cool. I like it. But for one thing, it's already been dealt with at least once when you're dealing with the Quarians and the Geth. You've already dealt with that. Now they're just making you deal with it again. It's a similar problem to Dragon Age 2's finale, where you're dealing with a similar problem that was going on in Dragon Age Origins, and it's like, yeah, we already dealt with that. Now you're making me do it again. Like, that's kind of I weird. actually – I agree actually, with Rob's not point. So much... like... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, thank you. I, I agree with Rob's point there. Basically – Overall, I feel like the people who don't like the ending are really marketing themselves badly because, A, they're trolling Bioware. And sure, occasionally they'll say something funny, but that is not how you get – you know, if you want them to change the ending and you really genuinely want that, you need to engage in a dialogue, not start harassing these people, especially not the community managers who have nothing oh, to do with developing the game. Yeah, definitely. The, the thing is, I am – some people are saying, oh, we want a happy ending. I want a happy ending. I don't care if it's a happy ending. I would have been fine with these three endings if they had, A, been hinted at prior to that led up to it logically and you've been able to question the kid but the, the the worst thing of all is that every decision you've made in the game and people have debated this with me and i firmly believe that i'm right here your decisions throughout the game yes oh they affect your journey and that affects how you perceive the end but the fact of the matter is if you shot more in the face or you didn't it doesn't matter if you saved the geth or murdered the hell out of them doesn't matter it, everything you did does not matter because the ending sets everyone back to zero no matter what you did, everybody ends up with the exact same situation. The, so all these decisions you've made are irrelevant. I agree to a certain extent, but I mean, um, there's a lot of argument to be made for like um, civilization actually rebuilding themselves because I mean, they still have faster than light technology. They still have quantum entanglement communicators and stuff like that. Well, they don't. So, the I'm sorry to interrupt. Quantum entanglers are on the mass relays, which blew up. Oh, really? And yeah. didn't we establish yeah. that mass relays blowing up would just, like, devastate those galaxies? That, but that's, I, actually, it, sorry. that's actually... That's um, actually different. I think we're getting way issues. too far into <laughs> minutiae. Yeah, and, uh, that like, was... Like, honestly, like, we, I think we, we well stated what we disagree with in the ending, and at this point, we're getting into such minutiae that it's it's... Yeah, we're arguing little tiny points. It, it's, you know... It, it becomes One thing tedious. I found interesting, though... Um, it's obvious from Mass Effect 1, starting from Mass Effect 1, that there was a lot of different, like, um, possible ways that the ending could have come up. If you looked at all the different um, planet descriptions and stuff like that, for example, in Mass Effect 2, you had this, um, you had this, the, the Tali recruitment quest, 
was this thing in Haystrom, where the star was going nova because of dark energy. In Mass Effect 1, there's a description on a planet where some Volus said he saw some angelic being that was the remnants of a civilization that was trying to prevent Organas from being wiped out by um, advanced technological beings and stuff. They gave themselves a lot of outs, so it's it's interesting that they chose this one out of all the things they could have done. Mm. I, I think it's brave for them to do the ending. I think that that's fine. And and, and again, as Steven's 100% correct. What people are doing, like this this petition to get Bioware to make a new ending, like that's the wrong way to go about doing it. Here's the deal, Actually, guys. I think the Child's Play petition yeah, worked that, out well yeah. in that sense. Yeah, I mean, if you're raising if you're raising money for for charity, that's great. But here here's the thing that a, a lot of Bioware fans, a lot of Mass Effect fans, need to need to sit down and calm down. We're all very adamant here. We're all on different sides of the fence. A, it's really cool that we all care enough to have this conversation right now. That's really cool because that shows that we're all invested in this universe and we care. Which is a success for Bioware. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. B, sometimes bad endings happen, okay? Like, as much as I love, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy, as much as I love Back to the Future, as much as I love Ghostbusters, Uh, what? You said Back to the Future in a negative context. I will allow you to redact your statement. Uh, No, I'm keeping it. I don't like Back to the Future 3. Sorry. You know what would have been great is if Mass Effect would have just gone blank like in the middle of the sequence talking to uh the elusive man (laughs) (laughs) you're done (laughs) but 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 i think bad endings happen and sometimes you just got to deal with it sometimes you just got to deal with the fact that you know you disagree from the way the creators do it you know sometimes bad writing happens you know and i'm not saying that this is bad writing i'm saying that you know that we'll know years down the road if we, if we all think it's bad and we all just get over it you know that's fine but guys the, the freaking out and yelling and screaming and stamping your feet that's not cool. You want to have an analysis of this of like, why is it bad? What makes this ending bad? Why is it something that we don't like? Because if you point out wh- why we think this is a bad ending, then Bioware can turn around and do something different. I'll be honest, this ending to me was very similar to my main problems with the ending of Dragon Age 2, where you're given the option of siding between two people, and guess what? It doesn't only matter. Det- it doesn't matter. It just determines the orders that you fight the final bosses. It's pretty lame. And, you know, we kind of complained about that, and Bioware, they stuck by their guns, and they've done it with Mass Effect 3. Whether or not that changes fundamentally what we do from now on, that's fine. But I, I think that people are, are within their right to complain about the ending. I, I've seen a lot of people just sitting there, like, the, the retort of the, well, they don't have a right to complain about the ending. No, you are a consumer. You have every right to complain. It's how you complain. That's exactly. the important part. Exactly. Harassment I, is not how you get what you want. That's what children do. Yeah, and it, adults yeah, and discuss. You're, yeah, you don't want to bully other people into doing something that you want. You are not entitled to a better ending. You are not entitled to have, you know, a Bioware executives come to your house and give you ice cream. You are not entitled uh-huh. to a good ending. I want ice cream. 
you. I thought that was the good ending. That was the good ending. Yeah, Shepard, you I... turned the Reapers into ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Penny Arcade comic. But... Yeah, that, that, that comic is awesome. But for some commenters and some people in the media to say things like, you know, oh, uh, you're wrong if you say the, the ending's bad. No, 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 no. You can disagree on this. I, it, my opinion that the ending is bad doesn't mean that it is bad, just like Ashton's opinion that it's it's good doesn't mean that it's good. We're having. Oh, I don't think the ending's good. I just think it's thought-provoking. I think thought-provoking is fine. I think that there are massive plot holes that Steven can drive a truck through. But, but, <laughs> and will. And will. But – I don't think that – I think both sides are way too crazy over this whole issue. The people that are defending the ending and saying that no one has a right to complain about the ending of a franchise, that's like saying you don't have a right to critique a game. So uh, so right. do away with review scores. We'll just say it's perfect. Like, no, that's what we do. Steve, I will point out here, the people who say that they want a happy ending for Mass Effect 3, they are the reason that Hollywood has all these, like, sequelitis things. It's like that's that's – uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I, I would have honestly. The, the, what started this whole ending discussion? This this idea of Shepard and Anderson staring at the Earth. If I could go back now, I would just turn the game off right then. I That's exactly what my roommate said too. He goes, turn yeah, that would off right that would have been a great place to end the game. Like the end of Shepard's story, the him dying, having saved the Earth. You know, maybe maybe do like a couple quick cutaways to like I don't know Tally like. Paris crying or Garrus or like the Turians and like raising their hands to like Shepard or whatever. That would have been awesome. Like yeah. that would have been great. That to me is the ending. That's the ending I'll remember. I, I am because not going to think about the Star Child. That that is an that's an excellent way because they said they wanted it to be open to interpretation and to let people discuss it. And that would have done that and not been like, oh by the way, those decisions you made <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Although if they had done that a lot of people would just said, "Oh, what's the motivations of the Reapers?" Because everybody needs things spelled out for them. <laughs> I'm okay with just an evil force. I'm I'm all right with that. Stephen, you said you had a question that you wanted to ask, like a while back. <laughs> you said uh... you want to point out a plot hole that has nothing to do with the ending. Oh yeah, this is actually my roommate just sent this to me over Steam, and I wanted to ask about it. Why does Miranda need to put a tracking device on Kai Lang to find out where the Cerberus HQ is? Because she's been standing there before, and even if it moves, it's still in front of the same star. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, they laughed. Can we, can we? I assume I assume it's because um, the elusive man uh, switches between headquarters every so often, so uh, they would know that if um, if the the one they assaulted would be the actual one that the elusive man was at. So there just happen to be other stars that look exactly the same as the star that was so prevalent <laughs> in Mass Effect. I don't know. I'm just going with the lore here. The lore states that the elusive man switches between HQs. The elusive man is elusive. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My bigger problem. Okay. Uh, How challenging. Outside of all of this, I think we can all agree that Kai Lang is stupid. Can we yeah, all agree on that? Look, Kylan gives us one great thing, and that's that was for Thane, you son of a bitch. <laughs> that's my favorite. That was, yeah, that was Jennifer was Hale says it was beautiful. Kylan was so lame. Like he <laughs> was so like honestly, he showed yeah. up, and I was like, uh, huh? uh, why did Vamp just show up in the game? What's going on here? Like I'm confused. I mean, I'm happy. That's exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the reaction I had. I'm like, you got Metal Gear Solid in my Mass Effect. What the hell? Yeah, I was I'm actually happy about ASX. And I love how Shepard just sees him and he's like, what? <laughs> or she, if you're a... 
Jennifer Hale Shepard. And not only that, but he follows like the I, I wish we could have like Spoonie on the show because he follows the absolutely ridiculous Final Fantasy trope of like using a sword while everyone else has high powered explosives, rockers, <laughs> sniper. Well, rifles, that's because he, that at least is explained in the game. He's a phantom. He has the same like oh. implants as the phantoms do. Oh, so he's meant he, he's meant to be a stealth fighter. It's just that you fight him, you know, with a helicopter blasting you. You, you guys, you guys have taken history classes where like the Polish armies engaged with cavalry against German tanks in World War One, and they were like absolutely shredded, right? So whenever I see somebody just using like cybernetic swords or whatnot, and they're going up against like assault rifle dudes, I always kind of groan a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, when yeah. you, you can mean, attach all the gadgets you want to a sword, it's still a stick. It's still <laughs> a, a sharp stick. Yeah, I'm the still, only way you could remotely enjoy it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Liz. I was going to say, unless you put a gun on that sword, and then in which case it becomes the best weapon ever that always gets a critical. Yeah, yeah. Guns <laughs> guns that turn into swords and vice versa are always awesome. I'm sorry. Was I hearing somebody complaining about Renzo Kukin? I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I... All right. I mean, the only way you could um, enjoy or even appreciate Kylan's Kylan's character remotely is if you read the books where he makes his appearances. You That's know, the one book I haven't read. Is the one with him in it. My fiance, but I don't count the second one because the second one sucks. No, no. <laughs> my fiance does that all the time. Whenever we were watching Harry Potter and I was asking questions, she's like, "You just need to read the books." And I'm like, "You do." But I'm like, "Well, maybe that's a deficiency with your storytelling if I have to read the books while I'm watching the movie." Okay, that's a whole different conversation. But I do agree with you. Okay, thank you. I, I think the Harry Potter movies are not very well made. Uh, for people that haven't read the books. Yes. Oh. They're made people who've read the books, but yes. we are way digressing. Okay. All right. So I think it's time to talk about news. In the end, yep. Mass Effect yeah, Can we talk about news? In, in the end, in the end, Mass Effect 3, great game. It has some issues, but at least we are – we want to talk about them. And honestly, you know what? I hate the ending, but like I, you know, I tell my roommate because you know, we, we've been talking about it all week. Yeah, you may hate the ending, but does that change the fact that you had an awesome experience that you're probably not going to forget because of how incredible those characters were for, like, This is what I've been saying years. over Twitter the last few days was, is that really going to take away from, like, a couple of years of, you know... Awesome. ...of loving this series and all the memories and stuff? Yeah, and I, I myself didn't mind the ending too much. I mean, a lot of people will take issue with my final score when my PC review goes up, but, you know... That's why it's a review. <laughs> it, will be, it will be up by the time people are listening to this. Uh, All right. John, do you have a little bit of news for us? Although there's only one news story that matters. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. I do. And the one news story that matters, Xseed is bringing Ease, Oath, and Felgana and Ease Origins to Steam. Felgana's out by the time you're listening to this. Ease Origin is out in question mark amount of time. That is, no, you know what? Honestly, that actually is pretty awesome news. Like, That is awesome. Like, I'm really happy to hear that. That's the alternative. Keep going. Yeah. Um, there's a new update for Skyrim that has a whole bunch of really cool uh, kill cams. I need to get that off Steam the next time it comes out. What, Matt? Yeah, uh, Skyrim or? Next time they have a sale, I mean. The next time Steam has a sale, I'm getting Skyrim. And they're going to boot it from $60 down to 10 And I'm going to be uh, like, yes! <laughs> All right. Um, okay, fine. Here's the one that Rob's waiting for. Um, there's going to be a remake of Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2. You know what? I am excited about that because I've never played those games. So I am oh. actually excited about that. Was anyone else really curious to hear how they said they're going to like update the code and add new content? Because that made me go, yay! Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's it's not Bioware. It's it's Atari and a company that Atari has hired to do this. 
because they're the ones that have the licenses for for uh, Dungeons and Dragons. But it it should be interesting. I mean, as long as they don't go too far away from what Bioware has created, I'm all up for, yes, let's make this more modern. Because if you've you've ever tried to play Baldur's Gate, specifically Baldur's Gate 1, it's it's like unplayable now because it's just so archaic and it runs yeah, in like 600 is. by 480. <laughs> I, I, I'm really excited for it because like I said, I, I wasn't a PC gamer back in the day, so I never played Baldur's Gate. All I played was Dark Alliance on like the PS2. So I am really excited to play this. They, they are fantastic, yeah, like especially in terms of story, like they're pretty much the mass effects of that generation. Like the, obviously the gameplay parallels are totally different, but the characters and just the plotting in those games is so great. I'm excited for it. They, that's a uh, summer release right now, John. Um, yeah, that's what it's looking yes. like. cool, cool. Um, going on to another top tier sequel that's coming out. Uh, wasteland two actually got a Kickstarter I hate, campaign. I hate you so much, John, you can tell other stories all you want. You're going to run out eventually. <laughs> eventually <laughs> we're going to have to say it. <laughs> That's, That's when I go mute my mic and let Rob have his, his monologue for uh, 10 minutes. I'm trying to put it off as far as possible. Okay, Wasteland 2, that is really cool. I, I think it's great to have this Kickstarter campaign. You know, it's... And they've done really well with it so far. Yeah, no, it, I think that it's fully funded, so... Isn't that... That Kickstarter thing is awesome. Like, I've been reading, like, uh, Double Fine is making an adventure game, and it made, like, a zillion dollars, and then... Yeah, 3.3 3 million, I Yeah, believe. let's hope that... Let, let's hope that... Sega thinks enough to do this, and maybe they do like a Fantasy Star Kickstarter. Yeah, I would contribute to that. Yeah, Cognition actually. The, we we, uh, we interviewed their developers. They did the Silver Lining at Phoenix Online. Cognition actually made a ton of money on Kickstarter too. Which, I mean, it's a really cool way to get like a game that you want made made. Like th- to get past that whole oh we can't put the investment into it because we're not worried people aren't going to buy it. Well, and and what I think is great about this is is kind of you know in Exile is is not a large uh, developer. They did the Bard's Tale remake, which was not very good. It was based off the Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance engine. They did Hunted, which was kind of Gears of War in Fantasyland. And I think that, I hope that they do well with this, because this seems to go back to Brian Fargo's roots, where, okay, we're going to make an isometric tactical RPG and is going to use, you know, the all the original Wasteland stuff. Is, so was Wasteland like a tabletop game? No, Wasteland, Wasteland is Fallout Zero. Yeah, it's oh, it's oh okay, yeah, yeah. I've never played it, but I heard it was really cool. It's really old. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was it's from 1988, so it's almost unplayable now. But Goodness. but it, it was it was essentially the game that spawned Fallout. Was Zach alive in 1988? No, I don't doesn't. think so. <laughs> <laughs> Zach's like, thanks guys, I'm not even there. Make fun of me. It's so easy though. There's another sequel that bears mentioning. Um, Room Factory Four is dated for Japan this week, so. Also, Spellforce 2. Yeah, Spell, Spellforce Spell. 2, a six-year-old game, gets an expansion pack. Yeah. Yeah, I still don't get that. <laughs> Are people still playing well, it? Uh, well, I think it's because the, the license got passed around, and then uh, whatever the company that was holding it went uh, bankrupt, and I think some other company has the license now. And it's just, it's when it comes to, to like, the the some of the European companies, it gets really, really convoluted with who owns what. And... This is one of those cases. Um, let's see. A game that was in beta for a very long time. Uh, Star Wars The Old Republic is getting a new patch. I hate you. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's It's entitled Legacy. It's got a new Flashpoint, new Operation, a new Warzone. 
Um, it's going to have Warzone rankings, some new UIs, guild banks, new items. Um, and actually, while while you, you listeners won't be able to take advantage of it, right now it's on a free weekend. Um, so if you get invited by a friend, you can play the Ultra Public all weekend long for nothing. Actually, um, it, you have to like make an account. Like, will do you know if you'll be able to take that account? And like, if you say you play it and you like it on the free weekend, will you be able to take what you did there? I, I, I am sure. I I, so. I'm pretty well, sure you I'll, can. While I have no confirmation because I don't have the press release in front of me, it would be stupid for them not to. So yes. I'm going to assume so. Okay, cool. All right. Um, we have. I think that's it. No, no, no. We're going. I, I've got more. <laughs> um, due out. Uh, actually, I believe this will be out uh, by the time you listen to this. There's the. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I'm back a week. This is still pre podcast, but the Jill Nabot DLC for Final Fantasy 13 2 is out. Uh, it's a, uh, it's three dollars. I'm sorry, not a dollar. Um, and you could fight Jill Nabot, who was a bad guy from the original Final Fantasy 13, which I know is one of Rob's. She had a striking personality. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just tuning you out right now, John. Okay, that's fine. Um, Chaos Rings Two is out. <laughs> Some of the listeners are listening going, thanks for trolling all of the news stories I care about. I'm not trolling. Like, no, honestly, not at all. Of I'm, I'm not. spending as much time on things that I find important oh, absolutely. before Rob goes off and everyone turns off the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, that's definitely a good like, idea. I think you're underestimating the degree of excitement I have here, and that sounds really you weird. You think this everybody. is bad now? Just wait until they announce Dark Souls 2. Yeah. But, uh, no. Dark Souls. Can we say Dark Souls? So if, you, if you're a fan of iOS games, um, these are actually it's Media Vision who's developed all of these, and they're they're really good. Chaos Rings and Chaos Rings Omega are both very good. Is and these while like ignoring Wild Arms. Well, while isn't Wild Arms a Sony property though? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, because it's not like they'd be like, oh yeah, let's make Wild Arms because Sony is like, but well, we own that license, whereas um, Square wants them to make more Chaos Rings. So that uh, that is out now. It's um, two thousand yen. So we don't know how much actual money it is. <laughs> how, much, how much is that in American dollar use? Three hundred. I think we had one other story to discuss. Uh, Rob, would you like to take the floor? Um. Well. Apparently, uh, May 15th, Diablo 3 comes out. Uh, uh, Game of Thrones? No. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones comes out on May 15th. So does Max Payne. Winter is, in fact, coming on May 15th. Yeah, um, and, and you know what? There's a fantastic interview about it right after this. And that's the end of our podcast, folks. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> You're so wrong. The only news anyone cares about, May 15th. I will be sitting at my computer playing Diablo 3. I am calling off work that day. Yeah, I've, right. I've already I, I, told I already all my students. All my students know that they have off on May 15th. Yeah, I took the day off already, too. <laughs> I will no. I use the last remaining vacation days I have. Now, now, the question I have for you, Rob, is you actually have anything new to discuss here? Because as far as I know, there's been nothing different announced, just a release date. You know, that's that's quite enough. That's all anybody wanted. Okay, so good. We're done. Stephen, Stephen, how excited are you? So excited! It's this is a good day. This is a good day. So, so 
I mean, like, I also, what's everybody else playing right now? Now that like Mass Effect Three Fever has come and gone. Uh, well, I'm Mass playing the Diablo Three Beta. Which are two? Of course you are. Mass Effect Three again. Yeah. Oh no no no! That that does give me a cool uh, chance to say something really funny. Um, we're uh, we're running way long, guys. I, I know I know I know. No, but uh, here's here's. Uh, oh, <laughs> I know. But shut up! I have to talk. No no no. Two two quick things. Okay. Uh, first off, um, we got a wonderful email from uh oh god, what's the guy's name? Thomas Goik. I want to make sure I get that last name right. G O I K. And he is one of the wonderful German people that does the Random Encounter German podcast. Uh, he sent me a wonderful email uh, saying that he was really cool with us, you know, using Random Encounter. They were using it first, but uh, he's totally okay with us doing that. It was a really nice email. I appreciate you for that. Um, and then also, the best way to play Skyrim. I figured it out. We already went over that. It's with the Randy Savage mod. No, 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 no. The best, no, no, no. The best way to play Skyrim is as soon as you get through the opening tutorial mission, don't advance the main plot because you will never have a dragon attack you. I'm not kidding. It makes the game better. It actually <laughs> does. You never have to worry about a random dragon attack. They're just not in the game. But that, how do you, what, what about, oh, yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It, it makes the whole game better. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this portion of Random Encounter. Uh, following, we have John and my interview with uh, the two guys from Atlas, Aram and Scott. 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 I, why do I keep forgetting? I wanted to call him John during the interview. I don't know. I don't know why. Hey, I just got John on the brain. Uh, where we're going to talk about the Game of Thrones RPG, so please stay tuned for that. As always, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or the RSS feed, and we will talk to you guys later. Renegade for life. special edition of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm John McCarroll, uh, e-commerce business analyst. Oh, wait, wrong job. Uh, Editor-in-chief, RPG Fan. Uh, here I have with me everyone's favorite podcast host. Yeah, Rob Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Yeah, now that you've let people know where you work, they're going to firebomb you. Good to know, John. Do you think that, that truly people are going to find me because I'm a business analyst? Uh, I'm, I'm just saying, man, you want to, like, keep your identity secret on the Internet. People are nuts. Um, and I've got, we've got with us actually two special guests from Atlas USA. Uh, we have Aram Jabari, PR manager. Hello. And we have Scott Williams, who is the QA lead on the Game of Thrones RPG. Great to be here. So, uh, first off, I mean, tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you do at Atlas, and yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, John, are you saying that it's you? It's not possible to make a career on just writing for RPG. Are you saying you have to have a second job? Yes, possibly a third. That is sh devastating for so many listeners right now who dream of doing what you do. Um, See, but I, I'm happy with what I do. So even though I can't make a living off of RPG fan, I'm still happy doing what I do because I get you to talk what? to great people like Aram. Well, the A, that's thank you very much, and B, we're very glad that you have the time to do it because uh, we're both thrilled to be on the podcast. Uh, well, so I'm the PR manager at Atlas. I, I write press releases. I I, uh, I I gather the office around a fire and and play the lute and sing sing songs of the bard. I clean the bathrooms on the weekend. Uh, but basically, I just kind of talk about our games and. 
try to spread the word. I don't really do all that much. He, he's a secretary, too. I remember I called the, the, the base Atlas line, not even to his extension, and he answered the phone, and I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Now direct everyone to our website where our company's phone number is listed. Tom's desk is actually in the lobby. Yeah, it's my desk is office. in the lobby. And they said something about taking my stapler and moving me into the basement. I don't know. Uh, Scott, would you like to? Hi, I'm Scott Williams. I'm a QA lead. Uh, basically, my job is to make sure that the game is running as smoothly as possible by the time it gets released. Uh, this involves a lot of things. I've been pretty busy lately. But uh, hopefully, if I do my job well, then everybody will enjoy the game. Hey, what, what do the words regression test mean to you? Uh, well, that uh, is probably the first thing you yeah. <laughs> Okay. I, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page because I do some software QA as well at work, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah, they, I'm a school fun. teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm just, I, I teach high school physics, guys. Thanks for just going. Around. I'm just going to sit in the corner right now. All right. <laughs> So you guys are working on this RPG, uh, the Game of Thrones, from the universe of George R. R. Martin, and it's it's developed by Cyanide, which is a developer. I think it's it's done by the the Paris team. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Paris team. So for anyone who uh, is familiar with Cyanide, um, or they may have heard of the the strategy game that was released a little while ago, uh, downloadable for PC. It's actually a separate team. That's their uh, Montreal team. They have a completely separate development studio, their larger studio in Paris, uh, headquartered in France. And they are, yeah, well, they've been working on the RPG for quite some time now. So uh, Cyanide actually has a, a pretty decent history. Um, they worked on... I forget the the name of the game, but it ripped off Blood Bowl. It was like the same game, and there was a. Big... Uh, no, I actually was no no no. They they no. licensed it no, was no, no, Blood Bowl. No no no. They, they I'm getting there. They, okay. There was a game that they made beforehand that that was essentially a Blood Bowl clone. There was a lawsuit, and then essentially as part of the lawsuit, they got the license to do a real Blood Bowl game. Do you remember the name of the one that they did before? Ah, uh, let me. But. While, while we go on a talk, I will do some Google research. Okay, thanks for paying, giving us your full and undivided attention. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll carry it right now. Uh, Rob, tell us about yeah. Tell us about your day job. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a physics teacher, so that there's not a whole lot. I just I unlock the are you, mysteries. Are you really? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a high school physics teacher. Good for you, man. I'm just watching Breaking Bad right now, and. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you've been dealing any, any crystal meth or anything, but that could be a lot of fun for you if it ever gets boring. Yeah, well, I, I just like teaching the kids that they're immortal, just, you know, quantum immortality theory and that sort of stuff, and then they just walk out of my class, just yeah. mind completely blown. Cyanide's game uh, that was a blood blow clone was called Chaos League. Chaos League, that's right. Uh, well, you know, one of the interesting things is um, they – they're a, they're a developer with a lot of passion, passion for you know board games, pen and paper games like Blood Bowl, passion for Game of Thrones, and they pursued George R. 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 Martin. They pursued the license uh, years years ago before the HBO show went into production. The reason a game exists, I don't I don't think anyone was actively looking to license it at that time because its success was based entirely on the uh, at the time four books that were out, and uh, so they basically went to George Martin's house a couple times. They, they, they really pitched him aggressively. They, they planned out the story arc. They worked on all this stuff, and they made it happen. So I, I saw online a few people said, oh, you know, it, it, 
it, it doesn't look like um, the, the a quadruple A RPG. You know, my eyes aren't bleeding rainbows. Like clearly, this is a quick cash in. But the reality of it is that for these guys, this is this is like a labor of love. And and um, so I, I they're a, they're a very passionate group of guys who really loved Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire. No, I'm actually a big fan of Cyanide. I I really really enjoyed actually both Chaos League and Blood Bowl. Um, and it, it's clear that, that while they're not a developer that ha- has heaps and heaps of money, they're not IDOS Montreal, they're not, uh, you know, they're not BioWare, but it's clear that they, what they do is they love the franchises that they're working on. So um, I, I know that, that Atlas is publishing it in the U.S. I know that uh, Focus is co-publishing. I, I'm not sure. Explain. The, the fo- Focus is going to be doing it in Europe. Uh, we we okay. don't have a presence in PAL territories, so uh, they're publishing it in PAL territories. We'll publish it in, in the States. Okay. So, like, how, how did Atlas get involved with this? You know, this the, the, there's kind of been a little bit of a trend lately where Atlas has published several several RPGs done by Western developers, like uh, Divine, or not Divine Divinity, that was the first one, uh, Divinity 2, and um, what was the name of the, the action game? Oh, the, the Curse Crusade. Curse well, Crusade. So, so here, the, you know, there are a lot of folks, I've seen this online too, that are speculating that Atlas is taking on a new direction, or we have some sort of a premeditated plan and in changing what we're about, and uh, that that really is not the case. Uh, I couldn't emphasize that more. We um, are primarily our, our skill has been, remains, and always will be localizing uh, Japanese RPGs. That's our in our parent company, uh, Index Corporation. You know that's that's the that's the legal name of the entity. But Atlas in Japan, they I mean they are responsible for, and we're so we're so proud to be able to say this. Some of the best reviewed, most beloved. RPGs of all time. You know, I, 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 as a PR guy, it's so cool to be able to say that and then, like, look at um, Persona 3 Portable, which is the second best PSP RPG of all time if you go look on GameRankings.com, like, just kind of objectively. Um, and, and Persona 4, which it, it's, it's so cool that now we're going to be able to do this, this fighting spinoff with um, uh, the Arc System Works, who has such a pedigree. But our, our parent company produces these amazing games, and that's what we're always about. But one of the realities is that, um, you know, as, as a publisher, we have to have a certain number of titles a year. We, we really can't just do one or two games. And um, there, there have been ebbs and flows, and whenever there's a situation where, obviously, we need to have something um, to, to publish. I mean, we, we, we're looking for great games always. And um, we find these opportunities that, you know, we worked with Frozen Byte to publish Trine 2 for XBLA and PSN and, and on PC. And, and that's just a, one of the best downloadable games of, of 2011, we felt. Um, we worked with the awesome guys in Chile, Ace Team, on uh, Xeno Clash, XBLA, and on Rock of Ages. Oh. Um, let, let me cut you off. Um, listeners, if, if you're up for, like, kind of a kitschy, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't even call it uh, tower defense, but... Rock Power offense, right? Yeah, Rock of Ages is absolutely bizarre, but it's fantastic. Thank you. I, and I know these are non-RPGs, and hopefully no one is already getting in their car trying to figure out how to fit their pitchfork and torch in the trunk to come to our office. Um, you know, but, like, you know, we believe in quality games. We're all gamers here. We actually have a process through which we sit down and we evaluate titles based on, yeah, the quality of the game, our ability to be successful with it. We, we're, we're still a business. We don't want to publish anything at a loss, but 
I, I, I've been incredibly impressed working here that, you know, we look at niche JRPGs. We have over the last four and a half years I've been with the company, and there are titles where we know we have very limited potential for, for breakout success, but we still publish the titles because it's our bread and butter, it's what our fans want, and, and that's, that's in our very, the fiber of our being. Um, but, yeah, we've had opportunities. I, we, we believed in Divinity 2. It was, a, it was a, a, an enhanced, polished version, kind of like a, the Witcher Enhanced Edition of, of a great game. We, we saw a really cool opportunity to be involved with, um, with Larian for that title. And, yeah, we're, we're a, lot, a lot of us are fans of Game of Thrones. A lot of us are fans of uh, the books. Scott has read all five. Um, I, you know, I haven't read the books, but I, I watched the show. And, uh, actually, I would, I would say a good 30%, 40% of our, of our production staff um, has digested a, a very heavy amount of A Song of Ice and Fire. So when we evaluated the title, when the opportunity came to us, I'm sure other publishers looked at it, too. Uh, we, we kind of uh, we became very bullish on it. We became very aggressive because we believed in the IP. We knew what Cyanide was doing and how they were approaching the game. We believed in um, their, uh, the importance they were giving to working with George R. R. Martin. Uh, and we believed in um, the, the support that we knew we would get from HBO. So it, it seemed to us like a great opportunity for us to branch out a bit, but also do something that's an RPG. It's, it still appeals to uh, a significant percentage of our fans, and we hope we can convince the other half or the other percent that's maybe on the fence. Cool. I'll let Rob ask some, some George R. R. Martin questions. I, I am the resident Song of Ice and Fire nerd on the podcast, although I think Neil reads it as well. Um, so now, you were talking about HBO and you were talking about George R. R. Martin. So is this based off of Martin's version of the story, like the original novels, or is this going off of the interpretation that uh, HBO has gone through, where we, where we see certain actors in certain roles and there have been little changes to the story here and there? Um, as you go through the game, uh, you, you'll notice that the, the first game takes place in the same time frame as the first book, um, but it features two uh, completely new main characters. Um, so it, it's definitely going to be the Game of Thrones universe, and you'll, you'll see locations and characters that appear in the book and the TV series um, that, that hopefully people will, will, get a, will enjoy. Uh, yeah, to, to give you insight, the, I mentioned the development and the conceptualization began before the show aired. Right, uh, right. They sat down, they went to George Martin's house a couple times. They actually like planned out these story arcs. They they told him what their ideas were. They told him where they wanted to take it, and they kind of conceptualized the entirety of the plot and its branches with him. Um, so I think the influence from the books, because that's really what they knew when they started the project. Uh, is is going to be as strong or the stronger influence. But then we also have these great elements from the show, which has become so popular now. We have the music from the show. We have the likenesses and the voices of some of the stars from the show. So uh, fans of the books only, fans of the show only, fans who've read and watched both, I think everyone is going to see some elements that really pull it all together for them. Now, uh, you say that you have some likenesses. Do you have Boromir? It's not Boromir, it's Eddard. You, uh, Ed, you said Eddard Stark, right? Yes, he's talking about Sean Bean. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, he's, he's mentioned, he's spoken of, that's, okay. he's discussed, but yeah. he, he does not appear in the, the, the game takes place, um, I guess you could say towards the end of the, you know, it's somewhere between, or concurrent to, well, the, the, 
beginning of the game actually takes place a little bit before the events in the first book start. Um, by the time the, the game's over, um, it, it's roughly around the same point as the end of the first game. Okay. Of the first book. I'm right. So, uh, I mean, he will be discussed about in ways that people who read the first book or watched the first season would understand. Okay. The significance of him, if you will. Okay, so so that's where it fits in in terms of the timeline. So we're talking about a little bit before uh, Robert Baratheon asks him to become the Hand of the King, and then we're going to go forward from the first book a little bit. Um, not Maybe not past the end, but okay, uh, okay. everything kind of catches up. And, and, a, and as the player goes on, if, if they're paying attention, they'll, they'll find lots of references to, to what's happening concurrently in the books, uh, which is actually really fun if, if you do know about the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, according to the latest trailer that you guys put out, I think it was just the other day, uh, there's two main characters in the game that you get to choose from? Uh, that's correct. Um, there's Morris, but Westford and Alistair Sarwick, they both, um, they, they kind of, what's the, we're trying to avoid spoiling it. A lot, a lot of the game's narrative is, takes cues from how the books and the show handle things in that, um, you know, the, the impetus for things, the origin of things, and ultimately where that all goes and how the possibilities, the choices, and, and the, the ways it can branch are all really the, the heart of the experience. So we're trying not to ruin any of that, but you yeah. can probably touch yeah. on them a bit. I mean, the first thing that, that hopefully people notice is um, the game will kind of go back and forth between the two in the traditional change of POV that, that's very strong in the books. Oh, um, okay. Uh, but, yeah, bo- both of these characters are... Uh, they're, they're a little older, um, and uh, true to Game of Thrones fashion, uh, they, they've both seen a lot, been through a lot, and uh, events start to catch up with them uh, at the beginning of the books. Um, basically, uh, th- that same kind of political intrigue and what's really going on, and people have hidden agendas, and it, it all revolves around them as they, as they move forward in their stories. Now, when you say the characters are older, um, I'm used to most of the games that Atlas publishes, where uh, the, the you know the 22 year old is the elder statesman. <laughs> no, they're they're not the, the typical wonderkin. Yeah, they don't have to buckle like 13, yeah, yeah, 13 these, belt buckles to these, get their these, these are these are grown men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, can you can let's talk a little bit about the class progression and the combat? Um, if to our listeners, if you haven't watched the new trailer, uh, we actually just posted it on RPG Fan today. Uh, it goes into the combat and it goes into a little bit of the class system. Um, can you guys touch on that? Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, when you start the game up, uh, right away you'll get to choose um, for the first character. Um, there, there's three different classes, and each of those has stances, which are effectively different ability trees. And as you go along, uh, eventually you get to choose an additional tree. Um, each tree is uh, fairly in-depth with different abilities and uh, passive bonuses. And then um, the second character will go through the same progress, or, or through the game, sorry, the same progression, and you'll have a completely different set of classes. So the two characters are, are very different from each other in their combat styles. Now, do you, do you control just one of those characters? Do you control them both? Can you issue orders? or um, when, when you go through combat, you might have uh, at points in the game a, a companion fighting along with you, in which case, yes, you can switch back and forth between them and control them fully. Uh, Morris um, has, has a special ability where he can effectively uh, control his dog, um, a la uh, 
the ward powers. Um, so you'll be able to use the dog as well um, on top of the the possibly two people that are fighting currently. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities to Dragon Age, maybe a little bit of Knights of the Old, uh, of the Old Republic. Um, and the reason I say that is in Dragon Age, obviously, uh, especially on PC, you can, like, drag with the mouse and, and highlight folks. And, and, th- and this is, it's, it is much more like Knights of the Old Republic in that when you're cycling between the characters, you're controlling them from a third-person perspective. But you can, the whole active pause combat system that we talked about in, in this trailer we just put out, uh, lets you slow down the combat and queue up up to three attacks or skills um, for as many of the characters that you, that you might be controlling. Okay, so so I, in the, in the trailer it was mentioned that you can never pause. Things slow down. Do you have like control or is over things when they slow down, or is it it goes to a certain point where you could say, well, I want combat to continue while I fight, but I can still choose abilities. Uh, when once you bring up the, uh, the 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 skill kind of the circular wheel that lets you choose and assign, it does slow down. I don't believe there's any way to select those things in real time, and nor would you want it to be the case. It a lot of the fights involve three, four, or more enemies, and um, very often it's necessary to slow things down. The game does a really nice job of rendering out who is attacking what. As soon as you issue an attack, you'll see a path with um, a clear direction that's indicating, you know, you're attacking and, and who, who's locked on to which of your characters. So uh, it can get hectic, and that's one of the reasons we're, we are really making sure people are aware of the active pause system is it, it slows things down enough for you to be able to make sound decisions, but it doesn't really eliminate the anxiety that you feel knowing that you've got a, a, a crap load of guys surrounding you and you have to make quick decisions and, and act uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in the trailer, you guys talked about how uh, the first character—I I forget his his name—was it? It was Wars. Uh, Wars. Wars. Uh, Wars is a member of the Night's Watch. I'm yeah. allowed to say that, right? Uh, okay. But now the other character, you guys didn't really go into his background at all, and I, I was a little intrigued on that. Was that on purpose, or is that something that we're going to find out later? I, I saw that he could be a water dancer which says some things about the backstory and possibly where he comes from in the narrative. So are we kind of keeping him under wraps right now? No, it, not so much that. we can, the, the characters have equal, uh, equal weight. And uh, one of the things we realized as we were putting videos out, you know, pr- promoting a game, getting people's awareness is a very fluid, dynamic process. I think we realized we were putting out a lot of cinematic uh, and narrative-focused videos, and people were starting to wonder what the game played like. So uh, we actually have videos and, and revelations to come for Alistair's character, but right, we, we, we kind of decided to put this combat video out, and a lot of the reaction we saw was really positive. People uh, were not expecting a game that is a very traditional uh, RPG, you know, something that immediately evokes Dragon Age 1. Specifically, and I saw a lot of people who were really happy that it, it is very much like Dragon Age One. So we wanted people to know that it, you know, there is a deep, true RPG combat system. There are uh, customization and development options for your character. There are m- multiple characters at times to control in combat. There are multiple variables to consider. Very cool ways to level up in terms of their skill trees. You have the ability to multi-class at at a certain point or to just double down on a certain kind of skill tree. So, I mean, there's depth to the game. And um, I think people really got a feel for that. We decided that it was really important to take a quick break from narrative stuff and focus on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And since you guys are dealing with a narrative that is kind of set in stone, I mean, Martin's gone on to, you know, he's in the middle of writing book six for the world, and obviously the HBO show is also going to be following with the stories that he's created. So now, can do you influence anything in the world? Uh, do you make decisions that can impact the world? And if so, how do, how do you make sure that those don't end up, you know, fundamentally breaking down the narrative and having, you know, a, a situation where you have a clash between what Martin has created? Well, that is really the core of the entire idea, the entire decision-making process to create two new protagonists and introduce a couple new characters and a couple new locations, all built within the existing canon and existing world of Westeros. The reason for all of that was because there are obviously a lot of significant changes in terms of the politics and the topography of the, sh uh, of the series, of the books and the show as, they, as it progresses. Uh, and when the designers who, were, who took the story writing responsibility working with George R. R. Martin very seriously, when they came up with a lot of the ideas they had for where to take things, it was decided, it was realized that the best course of action was to um, not tread on the, 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 the shoes or the path of the, the books and the show, but to uh, create a new story that is very authentic to the series uh, that, that allows us a narrative space to create the kind of uh, profound consequences and you know really impactful endings that um, players will appreciate without having to wonder about, you know, oh, how, we obviously we can't do this and that because it would break the canon significantly here and there. Uh, it, it's really an issue I think a lot of adaptations run into, yeah. TV and film. You know, mm -hmm. How do you avoid telling a new story without pissing people off? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds good. It sounds more like I, I, I have to think back to the, the, the Lord of the Rings RPG that EA made, The Third Age, versus uh, the one that Warner Brothers just did, uh, War in the North. War in the North did a really good job at integrating all of the, the scenarios and the characters without kind of trouncing on anything. And EA's Third Age was kind of like, oh, hey, do you remember all these awesome things from the movies? Well, there was this team of rinky-dink guys <laughs> right behind them. You didn't see them, but they were fighting the Balrog, too. And it's, it sounds like, based on what you're telling us, that, that uh, Cyanide has kind of gone to the side of reason of, okay, let's let's have this in the world, but not... You know, we're not going to focus on yeah. the that, that that was the point I was actually going to bring up too because I, I think to go along with John's argument, you, you definitely have good versions of it. You have bad versions of it. What what I was fearful of when I first heard about a Game of Thrones RPG was I was thinking back to like the Godfather game and how that was basically a sightseeing tour of the Godfather movies that I love so much. Like you were the character that hid ahead in, you know, the one guy's bed, or you saw the murder of Luca Brazzi. And I'm like, this isn't the world of the Godfather. This is me watching the Godfather movie just from a different lens, a different point of view. And I, I felt like that was kind of lost on what it could be. Yeah. Just to back up what Aram was saying at, at the end of the day, uh, this, this definitely feels like, a, uh, a Song of Ice and Fire story um, with, the, with the heavy consequences, the the whole, you know, there, there's good and there's evil, but but really, like, what's the difference between being honorable and doing the right thing and uh, who's yeah. trying to get ahead? 
it, it, it very much pl- takes a page out of Martin's book. There are a lot of RPGs I really love that I grew up with that have very overt moral choices, very overtly good or very overtly evil decisions for the player to make. And I think the, the way in which this game really stays true to the books, the series, and the universe is that it's a lot of shades of gray. And a lot of times people are going to make decisions and they're going to walk away feeling like they need to go wash their hands a bit because, uh, you know, in, in I think in the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, no one's going to really walk away with clean hands in the end. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of difficult choices for the character or the player to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to the line from Spaceballs of, uh, and now you see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> dumb. <laughs> That's just how I view it. So, no, no, it sounds like a good way of going about it. I think setting it in the universe of Westeros is a better idea than having you, I don't know, be Joffrey. Because, first off, no one would want to be Joffrey. But <laughs> they, they would walk him off the nearest cliff. I, I would. I mean, it's the only time I've ever wanted a small child dead. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this sounds good. Things like seem, things are shaping up pretty well. Um, this, is, this is out soon-ish, like it May, yeah? Uh, scheduled release date is May 15th for 360 PS3 and downloadable for PC. Uh, so there's no, there's not going to be a retail PC version? Uh, there, there are no plans for a retail PC version, no. Okay. Well, nobody buys PC games at retail anymore anyway. That's and, true. And we, well, we, have a cool, <laughs> we have a cool um, offer right now. I believe the only retailers participating are GameStop in the U.S. and in Canada and Amazon in the U.S. and in Canada. But uh, it's very limited run, pre-order art book that we're going to do. It's actually eight and a half by 11. Ooh. It's hard bound, 64 pages, full color, full of a ton of concept art, renders, uh, photos, a lot of uh, commentary from the devs, their their process in, in working on this franchise. And we think it's a really cool collectible, but it's one of the most expensive free bonuses we've done. If anyone is even thinking about pick, picking the game up, it's probably a good idea to investigate that and, and to just think about pre-ordering it sooner rather than later. It helps us out. It helps the retailers out. We kind of know how many to make. We know what the demand is. Um, a lot of times, a smaller publisher, we tend to actually project off of what the pre-orders are. But it also, we, we kind of have to cut it off at some point. The the hardbound binding is, is time-consuming stuff. And We'll we'll make a number and we'll stick with it and all of a sudden the retailers pages pull the offers so I don't know that sounds like a pretty hard sales pitch but yeah pre-order the game that's, that's <laughs> no, and, and you guys are always great about that always including that kind of content I mean that's awesome you know I think I think part of what I've tried to do at least in in my writing on RPG Fan is, is uh, a lot of times I see see gamers not looking at games as a business and at a certain point you know pre-orders are important for gauging demand and and I think that that you know what if you're interested in a game go pre-order it you know it's gonna it doesn't end up costing you anything at the end you know Amazon just keeps your credit card number on file GameStop keeps your five dollars yeah you know if you want something go put it down and you know you guys it, like it, Atlas yeah I, I thank you for that I, I we um as a as a as a company that that needs to survive and be very smart and lean about our business we try not to keep a lot of on-hand inventory the um, constant knock against Atlas. As long as I've been here, and even though I think things are a little better than they were, you know, when I started, in terms of this, people still think that we have some warehouse hidden, you know, you know two blocks away from Fort Knox, where we keep like copies, sealed copies of, uh, uh, yeah, Jack Brothers and Radiant Historia, <laughs> which we actually just did a, a, a new run of. I think it'll just be coming into 
um, Amazon very soon, shipping soon. And, you know, we, we, we build to demand, and a lot of times there's enough demand to justify, like, another run, a little small run, and then, you know, the game you know, goes on sale a couple times, and it disappears, and then all of a sudden it's, like, 80 bucks on eBay, and I'm, like, looking at the sealed copy I have in my closet at home. I'm like, oh, that could be interesting. Uh, just kidding. Um, and, you know, I... The reality is we would love to put a copy of, of our game in everyone's hand who wants it, but uh, it, it's not it's not possible for us to uh, assume all of the risk involved with that. Things are getting better. We got we have these PSP games that are coming out that are going to be available via PlayStation Network. Uh, it's, it's, it's been the case for a little while with, with some of our games. I think we have Catherine now that's available down, uh, digitally. So people can't I – I hate the fact that I have to say digitally because it's all digital, but – Downloadably. <laughs> uh, and, you know, people, we don't have to worry about inventory issues when it comes to that, which is really cool. No art books usually that way, but um, I, the trade-off is pretty cool. Well, I, I know I love my analog DVDs, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> With the gears and the pipes and the steam yeah, that comes yeah. out of the tubes. Well, yeah. you know, I... I, I am personally a huge fan of getting things digitally. I know that there there's a giant divide amongst RPG fans because a lot of hardcore RPG fans really like having things in their hands, having physical copies. But you know what? I've got uh, I've got my copy of Innocent Sin for PSP. It's on. It's digital. You know, I've got Yggdra Union. I've got a bunch of Atlas games that are digital on my PSP that I've loaded up on my Vita, and, you know, it's nice to have everything in one spot, too, especially when it comes to handhelds. Yeah, I, I mean, fortunately, the Vita, I think, is an awesome piece of hardware. The, little, the cartridges are tiny. Or, I mean, it's they're, they're, like, smaller than well, DS size, right? But Yeah, they're, they're uh, tiny, and I think that, that they're tough to put in. Like, it's not like they're friendly. <laughs> you, I, you, have to, you have to slightly grow out the child molester fingernails just a little bit to, like, be able to... Like, you know, click it in and click it out. It's like, what was that movie, Doubt, with Philip Seymour Hoffman? You see that movie? It's an obscure reference, but there's, like, a scene where he's walking in front of his team of, like, 10-year-old basketball uh, players. Rob is scaring the hell out of me right now. Look at my nails. Yeah, yeah. Scott, wait, Scott, why are you leaving the room? Scott? Scott? No, I, I love not having to carry around a ton of games, too. Uh, it's, but, you know, then again, I mean, you can't sniff a digital manual. Unless you print it out at home. <laughs> I do miss that. I, no, we were talking about that in the pre-show. Like, I, I miss having those, like, little extras and the, those little pieces of art that come along with the game. Like, I found my old Metroid book from, like, the original yeah. NES copy of the game that refers to Samus as he. Like, I love having that kind of stuff. That, that's, like, the nostalgia part. I mean, it's terrible for the environment, but, you know, it's Mother, it's mother Earth or us. Hey, come on now. That's a love I, 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 I love I love that I love that revelations the uh, economy with the IGN logo on it. I hope somebody at Capcom got shot over that. We're, we're, no, we're, we're not going to insult Capcom right now, but everyone who's listening to the show can. No, I, 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 I know. I, I kind of was funny. awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love I love it. Yeah. We yeah, every now and then we've got a. T I think we had a game, and I don't know if a lot of people noticed this. Where on the back the save file size was like you know eight gigabytes instead of eight megabytes, something ridiculous. And we're like, oh crap, that's not good. You know, the little the Sony template, and um, I mean, whenever we find that kind of, it's 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 funny. It's a collector's item, right? Maybe <laughs> every Atlas game is a collector's item. That's very true, hey, except for uh, the the Game Boy Super War game that sold like twelve copies. Beat a man. <laughs> Octomania. Let's not do that. Let's not do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, so it's it's been a pleasure having you guys on the show. We're actually uh, talking a little bit on the pregame. We hope to have you back uh, a little bit later this year for, for Gungnir and Growlancer. Um, it, it's been a pleasure having you. Aram's been a, a great help for us. He's the guy who gets us all the Atlas stuff so that you can hear about it before it's actually out. So we... Yeah, well, I, I think on behalf of Scott, myself, and everyone here, I, this is the first time we've been on the podcast and have a chance to directly address the RPG fan readership. But thank you guys for all of all of the posts about us, whether you're totally uh, hating, raging on us for not publishing a game that you want, and hopefully you always understand there's a legitimate reason, but all the times that you're you're kind of filling, um, filling the Internet with positive stuff about us, which always feels good. We, we totally appreciate you guys, and maybe we can do something where you guys can ask some questions and we'll do, a, we'll do another podcast or something down the road and give you guys direct answers or as close to a direct answer as my evasive PR personality will allow. I, well, I, you you yeah, could make our producer really happy if you, uh, you know, announced Persona 5 on our podcast at some point. Like, that would, that would just make, uh, that would make Zach's day. <laughs> um, I think what we can do is um, just make a list of all the games that you guys would like for us to announce, and then I can just shoot them down, like, one after the other. So it's like an all in, it's an all in one recording, and then that way um, it's like we can just put all that hate like in you know all the comments will be just in one post, right? What what and what what I can do is at the end of this podcast, I just need for you to record the no, word no for us, and then we can just, just talk, yeah just save you a bunch of work. <laughs> all right, uh, yeah, that'll probably right. work. I just, out I just say it right now, just so you guys can kind of like work with it in Audacity or some audio. All right, so <clears throat> no. All right, so. There you go. You guys can kind of sample well, that. As long as the wrong hasn't actually said Persona 5, because then we can cut it together. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're excited. I'm sure that Persona 5 is somewhere down the road, and that's Atlas Japan's job. Or, or yeah, that's, it, it, that's not your job, but we're very excited to see uh, Persona 4 The Golden and, uh, you know, the Persona 4 Arena, or Persona 3 Arena, or whichever arena it is. Persona 4, come on now. It's got Persona 3 characters in it. It does have Persona 3 fighters in it. That's true. That's true. That's true. But, no, we're we're very excited to, to see Atlas's lineup this year, kind of the last of the, the PSP games with Gungnir and Growlancer. And, you know, you guys have always done us good. Um, you know, if you're a fan of strategy RPGs, Devil Survivor is out now uh, for DS, probably the last DS RPG with the exception of Pokemans. You just started to break up ever so slightly. It was almost like it was ordering at a at a fast food place. Uh, that's how it goes. Sometimes I sound like a robot. That's, that's actually that's pretty, pretty cool. That, that's what we usually say about a rum. <laughs> God, get out. No, so it, it's it's absolutely been a pleasure, guys, and we're excited to have you back. And I'm sure I'll be seeing a rum here in about three months. Yeah, uh, looking forward to it, man. Uh, I'm guessing you're talking about E3. Yes. Thank you for having us on the show. Um, hopefully everyone look, is looking forward to Game of Thrones. Stay tuned. we got more stuff coming out. If you get a chance, check out the website, gameofthrones-thegame.com. We're, we're trying to put a lot of new content up there on a regular basis. And uh, we hopefully will be back later to do more pimpage and question answering. At least he's honest. <laughs> we well, do pimpage. Yeah, pimpage is good. Well, thank you. easy. Thank you guys very much, and uh, for Rob, for Scott, for Rob, this is John McCarroll saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.